0: This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your guide on the side, your coach. Top. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Anyway, we are talking today about uh, the tragedy that happened in Paris, the Paris attacks. Um, Truly, it is something that... None of us could have ever expected. Man, it just 911 all over again. And uh when we think about it and we figure out what's going on, it's changing us. It's changing I think the people in Paris and it's uh it's re having all of the politicians of the world rethinking. I think their attacks, their their ideas of what's what's what? What's right, what's wrong? And uh, so today we are going to be getting in-depth into that. Really, truly, can you stop a terrorist jihadi philosophy? I mean, people complain about ISIS, complain about uh, so many different uh, fears, so many different concerns, and the real question, I think, deep, deep down is, how do you actually rid the world of a way of thinking of a paradigm, because I don't believe in the end that it's um, it's something that we can just go blow up. Right? You just can't eradicate it by throwing bombs at it. It is a it truly is a thought process, and so uh, we're going to be replaying um, an, an incredible interview we did in the middle of the summer from J.M. Um, Berger, who is the author of the book ISIS: The State of Terror. He is going to be giving us some uh, pretty powerful insight into what's going on really behind the scenes of ISIS, What uh, what is the difference and the, the connection between ISIS and al-Qaeda. Uh, you hear a lot of times that uh, this may be an al- al-Qaeda te- um, cell that um, is coming from – that was responsible for the, what was going on in Paris, the bombing in Paris, but – we're going to be talking with an expert, J.M. Berger, who, for some reason, uh, you know, he's he's got the insight and has spent his his uh, his many many years studying what's going on behind the scenes. And so we'll be getting into a wonderful interview with him. It's it's actually quite uh, enlightening, especially with what's what you hear going on in um, Paris. But uh, tragedy, just a tragic set of events there in paris uh just to run through some of the latest for you Uh, so far um, 23 people are in custody with weapons and it equipment have been seized um about 100 and 29 i believe victims have been killed 352 were wounded in the attacks in paris 99 of the wounded are reported to be in very very serious condition um so the death toll will probably continue to to rise and so when we get there it's in the end it's not you know it's it's not this is 911 for the most of us all over again replayed figuring it out we've got to find a way to make sure that we know um what we're doing uh as far as re recovering and 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 following up on this it would be so easy for uh, Paris and the people of France to just jump in and start the bombing uh, of of uh, you know military installations in in Iraq, in Syria, and yet is that really going to change anything? So who knows, quite honestly, who knows what they should do? Uh, we just mourn with those that are in Paris and and pray for them and hope that um, that they can actually find. Some some peace, some consolation after such a tragic tragic event. Uh, Really, what happened? uh, If you haven't been listening to the news, or somehow have been missing this, in three different uh, kind of coordinated attacks at uh, different uh, sites with rifles, with bombs. um, It's tragic. Uh, Different at at this at a soccer match in France, between Germany and France. uh, There were some bomb attacks there, as well as at restaurants and cafes and on bars. Suicide bombers um, detonated vests, and uh, they believe seven of those, I believe, went off, and they're still looking for one other vest, Um, a suicide vest, which is, I mean, horrific, to say the very least. So, our prayers go out to them, and again, in just a few minutes, we'll be replaying, uh, we'll be replaying an interview that we did with J. M. Berger, who wrote a book, ISIS: The State of Terror. Um, he'll be talking to us about the difference of ISIS versus Al Qaeda, and how this really is a philosophy issue. This is about a way of thinking, not just kind of a traditional, a traditional type of war. So it really was a fascinating interview, and we thought it'd be valuable to replay, um, to just give everybody some insight into how you really and truly stop the spread of terror as a, as a paradigm or a thought process. But uh, before we go there, let's go to some of the other headlines that are around the news. There, I mean, there were debates. We haven't even gotten into that, but there were debates last week. Uh, but Terry South is with the headlines. Terry, what you got for us?
2: believe as many as 20 people across Europe may have been involved in plotting and executing the deadly Paris attacks that left at least 132 people dead and hundreds injured. Of the eight known assailants, six were killed when they detonated suicide belts and one was shot when, and killed by police. Two European intelligence officials told the Washington Post at least two of those attackers spent time in Syria. An eighth suspect identified by French police as Shah, uh, Salah Absalom, a Belgian-born French national, is on the run. And the subject of an international manhunt, police said the 26-year-old is a dangerous individual who allegedly rented one of the cars used in the attacks. He also may be held up currently in a home in Belgium that is surrounded by police at this hour. 168 locations have been raided by French security officials. Four, 104 people have been placed under house arrest in the last 48 hours since the bombings in France. This is according to the French Interior Minister. French officials say American authorities had vaguely warned them in September that French jihadists in Syria were plotting an attack. The New York Times reported on Sunday. Although the U.S. and several European countries had obtained intelligence indicating plans for the for an attack, officials did not know when it would happen or what, time of, what type of terrorism it would be. The intelligence, vague but credible, was one of the reasons French. The government launched a preemptive airstrike on October 8th in ISIS on their stronghold of Raqqa, which is considered the ISIS capital. France again launched airstrikes over the weekend. uh, 20 20 bombs dropped in all on the ISIS capital on Sunday. It It appears at least one of the bombers in Friday's attack uh, on Paris indeed held a Syrian passport, citing a named French senator who was briefed. The uh, individual arrived on the Greek island of Lazarus in early October amid a wave of Syrian refugees and was issued the emergency passport, which brings up more concern when it comes to the uh, immigration issues in Europe with people leaving the Syrian area and who is actually mixed in with the refugees that are coming across. And back home this morning, Alabama Governor Robert Bentley said on Sunday he planned to refuse the relocation of Syrian refugees to his state in wake of the attacks in Paris, also the Governor of Michigan Rick Snyder said he would suspend the acceptance of refugees until the Department of Homeland Security completes a full review of security clearances and procedures. Mm. So as we're trying to be open and welcoming to people who are leaving a horrible situation, now we have other concerns as they come into the country. Well, remember we had talked about that and then we're shaving their beards.
1: And I mean, but uh, this is going to be horrible for all of the other refugees
2: because now nobody's going to trust Anybody coming across the border, right? And as we talked, we had someone on talking about Europe's situation, and that was one of the concerns. Yeah. She really downplayed it, but they found uh, a passport on. It was one uh, of the one suicide of the bombers That's outside right. the uh, soccer stadium.
1: Ugh. I'm telling you, this is this is this is nine eleven. I mean, this is going to rock the European world too, because all of a sudden. Who's safe and what borders are safe? Germany's been letting in a lot of those Syrian refugees. And and then anyway, a lot of these uh, stories are coming from Brussels. These these people are sneaking across from Brussels, and uh, the search is now back in Brussels for the terrorists. Anyway, truly is a tragedy, and it's also, I think, pretty amazing to see how the support that I've seen on Facebook and on Twitter uh, from Americans – you know people are looking out for the French and are praying for them in the end though it is a very very uh, serious um, issue isn 't it and And the rest of us are starting to try to wonder and and worry uh, what are we supposed to do when it comes to terror and isis we we thought um, as as some help and aid for all of us to kind of get through this. We, we had a guest on the show last, uh, probably in the summer, last summer, um, actually last April, and his name is J.M. Berger. He is uh, an expert when it comes to ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the state of terror, and it, it's just going to help us sort through how ISIS is different than Al-Qaeda, because remember, initially the whole thing was about Al-Qaeda, and Osama Bin Laden and uh, the, uh, the attacks on 9-11 from Al-Qaeda. Well, there's now been the evolution to ISIS, and that's who we are at war with in Syria, in Iraq. And um, we are going to now be uh, taking a break. When we come back, we'll be listening to this interview with J.M. Berger, author of the book ISIS, The State of Terror. He co-authored the book with Jessica Stern, and it really is a wonderful interview about the complexity of of truly fighting the war on terror. And if we're going to, if we're really going to try to make some, some changes, some, some have some serious uh, impact on this uh, war on terror, we got to know exactly what we are fighting. So stick with us. We'll take a break. When we come back, more of the Matt Townsend show and an interview with J.M. Berger. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Again, uh, following up on the tragedy in Paris, the terrorist attacks, and um, we, we really wanted to see if we couldn't get you some more tools, some more information that would be valuable for you to better understand how you truly can combat terrorism. Um, you know, the news that we hear on ISIS, it continues to flood our screens and newspapers, especially now when we hear about uh, what's happened in, um, in Paris. But we hear story after story of the brutality of their attacks. Where, but where did they come from? Where did ISIS gain its power? And how can we actually fight this? Uh, we are going to replay a, a, an interview that we did with the co-author of the book ISIS, The State of Terror, JM Berger. He's an expert on violent extremism and terrorism. And he's uh we're in the interview he's gonna help us understand the origins of the evolution of ISIS from the uh from Al-Qaeda, which is now we're hearing some of their terror groups, the, war, the ones that might be claiming responsibility for some of these uh, attacks uh, that are going on in Paris. So we started the interview with a very simple question to Mr. Berger. The question was this, how is ISIS different than Al-Qaeda?
3: Well, uh, ISIS is an evolution of Al-Qaeda, in it, both in its strategies and, and how it presents itself, and, and in a very sort of physical, literal way. I mean, back in 2003, there was no such thing as al-Qaeda in Iraq, and, you know, in the destabilized environment that sprang up after we invaded, al-Qaeda put a foothold in, and it was founded by a guy named Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who had been a jihadist for a long time, but had never really affiliated himself with al-Qaeda because he had differences in strategy. He believed in a, a much more brutal form of... Jihadism than Al Qaeda did, which is you know something that can be hard to ha- wrap your head around. Yeah, uh, and he also believed in, in sectarian conflict uh, in a way that Osama bin Laden didn't. So he was he he didn't only want to separate the world into Muslims and non-Muslims, but he wanted to separate Muslims into good Muslims and bad Muslims and huh. kill the ones he thought were bad. So when the when We got into this conflict, uh, you know, there's an insurgency springing up in Iraq. There's a lot of chaos. And uh, Zarkali had started operations a little bit earlier, and he decided to affiliate himself with Al-Qaeda. It was really the first Al-Qaeda affiliate, as we understand it now. And uh, for some years, they they were able to coexist with tensions. So Al-Qaeda... Central, as we now call it, which is the original al-Qaeda that attacked us on September 11th, uh-huh. uh, really tried to pressure al-Qaeda in Iraq because they, they felt that the tactics they were using were too brutal, that they were alienating people, um, and and they were able to exert some pressure on the original group, but uh, not completely rein in its its excesses. Um, you know, over the course of the conflict and the surge and, and thereafter, you know, we went to Al-Qaeda in Iraq went through several leadership changes. We, we killed Zarkali in 2006. Uh, we killed his successors. And uh, the group changed over this time because it had... Really alienated so many people with its extreme violence um, that, you know, partly out of a desire to rebrand and also partly as an adjustment of its strategy, it changed its name to the Islamic State in Iraq hmm. and then subsequently ISIS when they tried to expand into Syria. Uh, so, really, there was just a built in tension all along, you know, that, yeah. that really. The, the evolution of the group, I think, was, was kind of inevitable in some ways. And it really hit a, a critical point uh, in Syria because ISIS, precursor to ISIS, the uh, Islamic State in Iraq, had sent a team of people to Syria to start, try and take advantage of the civil war that was breaking out there. And that group, which we now know as Jabhat al-Nusra, was so successful that ISIS wanted to publicly claim them. They had sent mm. them as sort of a covert team first. And unfortunately, Jabhat al-Nusra had become so successful that they didn't want to be under the the header of ISIS. ISIS had a terrible reputation. <laughs> it was very alienating, whereas Jabhat al-Nusra had really managed to unify a lot of factions in Syria because it took a more moderate approach. So. When ISIS try, ISIS basically tried to annex Al Nusra, and Al Qaeda nixed them. and that's that's when the official happened.
1: Well, and then it seems like uh, what's weird is that that with that void that. Uh, i guess the governmental control that was created when we entered iraq where we we, i can't remember what you called it but um, there was just an absence of control and it seems like what's happening in the middle east is as government regimes are falling in yemen in syria um, all of this it, it seems like that's where is that being caused by isis or is isis just benefiting because of that
3: well that, that's a great point, Matt. I mean that's, I've been thinking about this a lot and, and sort of trying to formulate how I want to write about it really, uh, you know, ISIS in particular, groups in general, but ISIS in particular really thrives in a a vacuum, a power vacuum. And there's a combination of factors. In some cases in Syria, they're exploiting a vacuum that had already existed in Iraq, too. Uh, And in other cases, they're looking for ways to expand that. So, you know, what we saw on March 20th was that they, they bombed two Houthi mosques in Yemen. Right. Uh, and you know that set off a chain reaction that that really has has resulted in like open war and no government in in Yemen. No. Now I don't want to overstate ISIS's credit for that. There's a uh, this was probably an inevitable thing. Yeah. <laughs> but you know I've been I've been thinking about it in terms of sort of the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. You know it's it's. There's a a giant pool of gasoline, and and they happen to be the ones who threw the match. Threw
1: the match. Well, because, again, too, and this is weird because the United States was also in a kind of backroom sort of way working Yemen as well, right? And maybe destabilizing, I don't know, uh, creating conditions— where it was, I don't know, easier to fall? Or were we supporting Yemen? How? I mean, I guess that my issue is, at what point do we get involved? Because it seems like the more the United States is getting involved, the more we create power vacuums in certain places. And we ennoble some and and embolden some and we weaken others. And sometimes we weaken our, our, you know, our coalition, our partner, and sometimes we strengthen our enemies.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, our our recent history of intervention in the region is is not too successful. Um, You know, in Yemen, I think uh, when you you look at the situation there and how our policies have kind of shaped our interactions with Yemen, I think that uh, we really made Yemen into an instrument of counterterrorism policy and ignored the really vastly complex Series of problems and, and, and divisions that were in the country. So, you know, because we're so focused on, on this as a, our counterterrorism tool, uh, a lot of other stuff that was going on just never got attention. So, if we're going to go in and, and be involved in the country's internal dynamics in, in such a significant way, you know, we can't just do it through a counterterrorism until there's really a lot of other things that you have to consider. And it's a big project. You know, any given country is a big project yeah. and we're kind of doing it in a lot of different countries, so it gets to be very challenging.
1: Talk about ISIS. I mean ISIS as an ideology, you brought it up a little bit. Um they they have a completely different paradigm that is probably Driving them uh, that's kind of more related to their view of the apocalypse, the end time, the end of times. They're, they're okay. They think they're, you know, they're trumpeting in the grand finale,
3: don't they? Yeah. Yeah. As, as my co author, Jessica Cernan, and I wrote in the book, it's really, uh, in many ways, ISIS is sort of a classic, uh, what you would call millenarian culture. It's, mm. a, it's an end times, end times belief system that anticipates the end of the world and is she's really looks around and sees you know and we've seen this in other kinds of uh movements not just islamic and not just uh religious but you you know you look around and you see signs that are the signs that everything is coming to an end and that just adds an incredible commitment and urgency. If you really believe that the world's coming to an end, there's a lot you might do that you wouldn't do under normal circumstances. Yeah,
1: you bet. And and you would probably welcome the West to come into this battle, because that will only expedite the process of the end of times.
3: Yeah, and and ISIS is, you know, ISIS. but Al-Qaeda did this too, but ISIS is much more uh, committed to it as a a narrative. It's it's really what sort of cast the West in the role of the of Rome as they refer to it they mm-hmm. they call us you know they use Rome to stand in for the West because you know the traditions, there's not really very consistent apocalyptic traditions in Islam. Right. You know, it's not like the Book of Revelations and Christianity yeah. where everybody kind of has the same idea. So they can pull from a lot of different stuff. And a lot of these narratives talk about Rome. And so we're Rome now <laughs> in, in their minds. And they want us to come in and, and not just to, to be there, to, like, be involved in this battle, but to do specific things. So they see they anticipate a, a massive battle in the town called Dubik. In Syria, and they they have geared a lot of their propaganda to this, including even one of their execution videos, where they're like, you know, they said right out for, you know, just flat out, we're waiting for you in Deir.
1: Here we go, huh? Uh, Let's take a break. We're talking with J.M. Berger, uh, who's one of the authors of the book ISIS, The State of Terror. He also wrote that uh, with Jessica Stern. And J.M. Berger is a non-resident fellow with the Brookings Institution, also the author of Jihad Joe, Americans Who Go to War in the Name of Islam. We're just picking his brain, trying to understand more ISIS and uh, the threat that it really is, and the ideology, how you understand it. When we come back, I really want to talk about... uh, how other, uh, you know, faithful members of Islam see ISIS, and uh, and maybe some some leadership ideas that we might want to look forward to as as our government getting involved in all of this. Pick his brain on that. This is the Matt Townsend show. More uh, understanding ISIS after this break. To the Matt Townsend show today, we are discussing ISIS, the state of terror. Trying to give you just a heads up on what it actually is, how ISIS came to be. We're using as our textbook today, my wonderful students, ISIS: The State of Terror, and uh, written by Jessica Stern and J.M. Berger. Joining us on the phone right now is J.M. Berger, and he is—he's uh, trying to teach us. We're—you know—we're kind of slow learners. J.M. Berger is a non-resident fellow with the Brookings Institution and author of Jihad Joe, Americans Who Go to War in the Name of Islam. Uh, You can go to the website IntelWire.com and you can uh, find uh, thousands of of declassified documents that he's published on September 11th, attacks and also the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, So again, J.M., thanks for being with us. Thank you. Talk about um, so as part of this. Not only is there kind of this, uh, mil, you know, this end of the world millennial. I think you called it millenarium cult. Millenarian. Millenarium cult. Kind of a, approach to to this to the to taking on the West or Rome as they call us. Um, they're also wanting to establish a caliphate. This is so. This is a belief in their faith. Uh, of a holy city talk about teach us about the caliphate and why that's such a different or, or important concept
3: well, the, the caliphate is a historical a historical Muslim political state, and it's taken on different forms over the course of, you know, centuries. Um, and, it, you know, the most recent iteration of that fell within the last couple hundred years, and it's a powerful, it's a powerful uh, image for, for a lot of Muslims. It has a lot of resonance, and the fact that ISIS is, has taken hold of it and claimed it is uh very divisive so some people you know a very small number of people get very excited about it and then a lot of other people are are really you know find it almost blasphemous and so hmm. you know, ludicrous
1: is it is it are they turning off other muslims what does what the rest of the islamic world think of isis
3: ISIS is, you know, a percentage of, of percentage of of all Muslims. It's it's really, uh, you know, by design to some extent, a very fringe movement. Um, Al Qaeda sort of pitched its its message to a very large segment of Muslims. They tried to be, you know, they presented arguments that they thought were very reasonable and intellectual, and you, you know, and even even with that kind of pitch, they still just had an incredibly tiny base of support. ISIS is moved into more it's more visceral it's it's making a very emotional play and so what it's getting you know it's sort of reduced the pool of people who are interested in some ways but the pool of people who are vulnerable to its message are much more energized so we're seeing more people because of that
1: so it, it increases the energy with those that are fighting but it probably decreased the the people that are actually on board
3: well, they're getting more people because the people like Al-Qaeda had a lot of passive supporters, people who would sort of like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, they're cool. I mean, when I say a lot, again, we're talking a percentage over percentage. Right. But, uh, you know, but they weren't necessarily moved to act by Al-Qaeda's message, whereas people who are receptive to ISIS message are much more inclined to, to act, to, mm. to carry it out. So it's, you know, the old the net result is they have, they're really the biggest, biggest jihadist group biggest extremist group really in in the world say
1: do, do you sense that other muslim states and leadership from other muslim states are they are condemning isis is, is that happening in the islamic world
3: it is the the local politics are, are complicated on the on the political leadership side, right when we're talking about governments so for instance You know, pretty disappointingly, Saudi Arabia has taken a very strong stand against the Houthis in Yemen, seeing them as a proxy for Iran, which is only part of the picture. Uh huh. Uh, whereas their their role against ISIS is much less visible. And, you know, I think a lot of people sort of look at that and and are dismayed by that. Um, at the same time, you know, we have Jordan has really taken part in a very strong way in this. Uh, you know, Egypt is, is, fighting ISIS. But, you know, a lot of these partners, with the exception of Jordan, really, a lot of these partners are very problematic for us. I mean, you know, the Egyptian government is a counter-coup yeah. government. You know, uh, the Saudis obviously live long chronicles of the, the problems we have with them. Uh, and then in Syria and in Iraq now, you know, we're we're sort of in this position, very uneasy position, where things that we do, are benefiting the Syrian regime or the Iranian regime. And, and you know, we were really struggling to try and tune our actions to suppress ISIS without, you know, allowing, for instance, Iranian linked militias in Iraq to carry mm-hmm. out atrocities, which we've seen very recently. Yeah.
1: Is it, are, do, do you get a sense that uh, as the Americans, I guess, try to stay out of, um, I don't know. I mean, they're not we're not out of it, but as we try to as we try to at least not put more of our own soldiers on the ground fighting these wars, is that is that a strategy that you sense will work? Because is it forcing a little more chaos in the in the area? Yet it seems like more and more as as we're not in there fighting that war, per se, Jordan you know they had their tragedy with their pilot. now they're more involved it seems like again because of the Houthis I guess Saudi Arabia has jumped in Iran's in a weird way Saudi Arabia and Iran are fighting by proxy in Yemen I'm assuming so uh, it just seems like other people are getting involved now and is that is that the strategy and is that a good strategy.
3: Uh, it, I think it's a good strategy for us to encourage regional players to take carry their own burdens. Mm. I think that for a lot of years, um, you know, countries in the region have been able to sort of sit back and and assume that we were going to take care of problems. Right. And, I, you know, I think that's pretty unhealthy. I think there's we've seen some obvious bad effects from that. Um, you know, now the problem is honestly is like, you know, with with ISIS, there's no path through this. that isn't going to come at a, a horrific human cost. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the, the paths through this is really is and I think we're seeing the start of that now is it's really a massive regional war that really resets the borders and resets the regimes. And you know, that's going to be, it's going to be very difficult for us to sit on the sidelines in in something like that. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of complications that could come in. For instance, the Russians could come in in support of Iran in such a conflict, and we might feel like we needed to respond to that. So, you know, I I mean, I think I've sort of come to the conclusion over time that really, we need to let the regional players, Sort things out, and and we may need to exercise the discipline to stay out even when things are, are terrible. Yeah, because. I mean, our, we always have a, a, an action bias, right? You know, that's, that's uh-huh. what politicians We're have. We're doers, right. I think Americans have that. You know, we got to do something about this. And, and the question is, can we do something about it that's going to make it better and also not harm our own security? Right. Well,
1: and, and do something about ideology and tribal warfare that's gone on for thousands of years. I mean, you, you're not going to solve it with one decision from our Congress.
3: Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and really, you know. There's arguably you – could, you could make a case that uh, a full-scale ground invasion in which we held vast amounts of territory in the Middle East may, might <laughs> solve the problem, in it, but it might not. Right. And Well, it would make know, great would video for it. ISIS, yeah. Yeah, and Americans wouldn't support it.
1: Right. Always. Well, and maybe just teach us, because I don't think a lot of it – we hear the word Sunni, we hear the word Shia a lot, but a lot of this is just tribal, right? This just comes down to – Tribes and then power struggles between the tribes, and then that's where those vacuums come in. Maybe how much of this is just like Shia-Sunni problem?
3: Yeah, I mean there is a religious dimension to it, but you're right. I mean a lot of it does have to do with really local politics and tribes. So you know we talked about this in the book about in Iraq. Part of the reason that Al Qaeda in Iraq was able to come back as ISIS was that there were a lot of sectarian problems. The the regime was Shia, they they cracked down on Sunnis, they pushed out Sunnis. But ultimately, these are like political plays for tribes, right? And, and it's exactly that. And the same thing in Yemen, the Houthis aren't even really just a Shia movement. They're not. They're they're a minority, an ethnic minority, and there's a a lot of Shias in it, but there are also Sunnis who are fighting on the same side as it, you know, and we talk about it in sort of very simple terms. I mean, I think, you know, the religious dimension of all this stuff Sometimes gets overplayed And it's For a group like ISIS especially I mean uh, it's really It's it's about having an exclusive identity hmm. And you know we see a pattern Of groups you know that are like this We see neo-Nazis or the Nazi party uh, You know that, that Have no ideological similarities But they're about what they're about is saying That you know my, my group is The chosen group And yeah. everybody else is danger And should be killed yeah. and that's you know, so in this case, Sunni Shia is the line that they've drawn around it. But, well,
1: yeah, that's I guess that's it, too, is they it, you know, it might be religious in the in, you know, in the beginning. But it's also it's their identity. They're really fighting for identity and, you know, sources of power.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it, there's definitely, you know, religion is part of it. It's a, religion is part of their, their message. It's just, it shapes the exact structure of what they do. But, you know, really, you mentioned this earlier and I've written about it. We, there's this debate about should we talk about ISIS as, as Islamic. It's mm. a group that is fundamentally Islamic. And it sort of, you know, comes down to that, uh, the question of how big a frame you want to put around this problem. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a problem with sharks, you want to come up with a strategy to fight fish. You <laughs> right. know, uh, I think that it's it's when you look at ISIS, it's very similar to other identity groups and not very similar to other Muslim groups.
1: Yeah. In fact, you, you, you talk about that. Um, by the way, we're talking with uh, J.M. Berger, one of the authors of ISIS, The State of Terror. Uh, he, he co-authored that book with Jessica Stern. And uh, J.M., one of the things about this, I think, to remember, and you bring it up in your book, is to be ignorant to Islam makes people vulnerable, especially even our youth might be vulnerable. If, if we don't understand Islam, and, and I love that you keep saying it's a percentage of one, of a percentage. It's a very small group we're talking about here. So um, explain what you mean why about being ignorant to Islam.
3: Yeah, well, you know, one thing that we've seen over time with jihadists, and and it seems to be even more pronounced with ISIS, is that uh, they get a lot of converts. So, you know, it's still a very small number of the overall people who convert to Islam. But what happens is when you convert, uh, especially in Islam, which is, is more decentralized than some other religions, Uh, you know, the the first person you meet who tells you about Islam is going to have an inordinate amount of influence Mm -hmm. on how you understand Islam, and because there's a a vast and, you know, bewildering, even to Muslims sometimes, uh, array of texts and opinions and and views in Islam, uh, if you're new to it and you don't know how to find information, you don't know how to who to talk to, to get a more diverse view, you can be steered in this direction kind of, kind of very specifically.
1: Hmm. So, and especially if you're already a vulnerable teen or a vulnerable person in society and maybe, you know, an outcast or ostracized, it might be easy to be, you know, picked up.
3: Yeah, there's – you know, we never saw any – you know, especially in sort of looking at Westerners and and Europeans, we were really – never – no one has ever found a profile for what this looks like. But you see sort of recurring patterns that, you know, represent chunks of the problem. And one that you see often is is sort of the seeker. You know, the person who's like, I'm going to try Buddhism and then I'm going to try, you know – uh, Druidism. And, yeah. and You know, they go through sort of bounce around looking for because they're looking for something to fill a hole in them. And then this is where they land.
1: What, what do you think we need to know, J.M.? When you think about um, you, you know I mean, you've written a ton about this and you're in deep. What does the actual American average Joe person need to understand about ISIS?
3: Well, I think, you know, the the thing that is most important and, and also most difficult is to understand that this is not that even if ISIS is able to carry out terrorist attacks in the United States, which it hasn't so far, it's not it's not a threat to our existence. Um, You know, the September 11th attacks, which I think, you know, really are kind of an outlier thing. You're almost Mm -hmm. never going to see anything like this. It didn't shut down the government. It didn't, you know, collapse. The United States didn't collapse. The economy didn't collapse. Uh, Everybody stayed at home. They didn't go flooding out in the streets to riot. Terrorism is something that we need to deal with and we need to fight it. But it's not a threat to our, our way of life unless we make our response of threat to our way of
1: life. Do we give it too much attention?
3: We do, although it's understandable. So, you know, there are uh, the list of things that are more likely to kill you than terrorism is incredibly long. (laughs) And, you know, it includes like falling off a chair. Yeah. And household Uh,
1: items, right? yeah,
3: Yeah. I mean, so... In that sense, we, we overprioritize it because there are bad people who want us to know that they're behind it. You know, your yeah. chair if you fall off your chair and break your neck, your chair isn't, it doesn't have malice toward you. Right. And so and, and there are some very narrow, long shot risks that we need to worry about, like WMDs and, and biological kind of attacks that are highly unlikely. But, you know, we do have to give them some attention. Mm-hmm. Um we allow it to take up a, a bigger place in our, our psyche than we should. We we allow it to be more of a source of fear than we should. And mm. you know, honestly, the thing is, with the changes in technology and changes in kind of communication and travel, we're going to be dealing with terrorism uh, at at some level for the indefinite future. Right. And right. you know, we need to start building resilience and sort of trying to understand you know, how to minimize it and how to minimize its impact on our politics.
1: Yeah. No, and I I agree. This is the new hundred year war. We had uh, another guest that talked about that. Just look at it as a hundred year war. But I I also like the idea that, I mean, we were surprised on 9-11 and okay, so we've heightened our understanding. We're preparing more. We need to pay attention. And yet I just wonder what would happen if we you know, just didn't make every single attack a major headline with tons of news coverage.
3: You know, it's, it's tough, and you know, it's it's also kind of hard to defend uh, making, for instance, the Fort Hood shooting a major headline when a shooting at a, a movie theater that kills just as many people might not be. As big so, right, you know, I mean, and I think we're we're improving on this. I mean, if you look at the marathon bombing, I live in the Boston area, yeah. and you know, that was. Uh, You know, we dealt with it. We just like went in. We dealt with it. Done. It didn't bring the country to a stop. Uh, It didn't fundamentally change our our politics because really, terrorism is about changing politics. Yeah, you know, through fear, right? An overreaction, and you know. So well, I think we're, we're making progress since 9-11. Yeah.
1: Well, we appreciate your work. Uh, J.M. Berger, author of ISIS, The State of Terror. Go to check out the website, intelwire.com. Uh, also, you can see more of his writings as he's a regular contributor to Foreign Policy magazine. J.M. Berger, thank you so much. Just insight, folks. Isn't that – honestly, I feel a lot better. Uh, just – Knowing where it fits in reality, one a a small percent of a small percent. Um, We're going to take a break. When we come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show, and uh, man, just continue the learning. We'll take a break. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting insight uh, from our guest, uh, J.M. Berger, on ISIS and the state of terror. It really does tell us, though, you're not going to just combat it by going to war. It's not just something you're going to bomb your way out of. At some point, it's 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 an ideology, right? We have to change the way people think. We have to change the way people are living. Ah, oh, complicated. Um, if we, on a lighter note, we could just do what Indonesia is doing. They uh, are considering using crocodiles for prison guards. The U.K., whoa. The, uh, the newspaper, The Guardian from the U.K., says Indonesia's anti-drug czar wants to build a prison on an island and staff it with crocodiles. Because as he correctly explains, you can't bribe a crocodile. Dude, that is just scary sounding. Is that your breathing, Ben? <laughs> yeah. You can't convince crocodiles to let inmates escape, Buddy Waseso told local media. Waseso reportedly plans to search for the croc guards himself. We will place as many crocodiles as we can there, the Guardian reports. I will search for the most ferocious type of crocodile. The proposed prison, reportedly inspired by a crock-filled island in the James Bond film Live and Let Die, would house death row drug convicts, the report says. Wow. How would you like to just be stranded on the death row island? You just got to get out. If you can get by the crocs. And then another layer of piranha.
4: Or just be the – have the job title of the, um, the crocodile recruiter. Ooh yeah. <laughs> What's
1: your job? I'm the croc recruiter. Eh? Um, anyway, that's I guess one way to make a prison safe. It would have helped in New York. Do you remember when that woman helped the, those prisoners escape? They talked her into you know, giving them a, like a saw <laughs> to cut through the bars. Hmm. When in doubt – Get Crocs. A little crocodile guard action. Nothing's getting out there. All right, folks. Well, uh, that's the first hour of the show. Um, man, we got a great show next hour as well. Bob Becker will be joining us next hour. You may have known him as um, one of the. Uh, he's a CNN political commentator and former host of the Five on Fox News Channel. He uh, was kind of the the Democratic pundit that would, would take a beating from four Republicans every show. He's going to be talking to us about a book that I heard about that he wrote. It's a wonderful uh, insight into uh, how he made it out alive, of life. Uh, He's been stabbed. He's been shot, believe it or not. The book's called I Should Be Dead, My Life Surviving Politics, TV, and Addiction. And he had a really amazing, you know, connection that uh, changed his life and brought him um, out to find peace and healing from his addiction. We'll be talking to Bob Beckel next hour, so make sure you stick with us, folks. We'll take a break, come back, do a little news, and then get in to a great interview with Bob Beckel. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Doing what we can on this Monday to uh, give you the information you need. And the tools you need. Got a great uh, guest coming up in a few minutes. Bob Becker will be joining us. You may know him as uh, CNN political commentator or former host of The Five on Fox News Channel. The poor, uh, I guess, Democratic representative on The Five on Fox News. He used to get beat up. It seemed like every turn. I have turned that on and it was one versus <laughs> four, right? You're
2: like, come on, this isn't even fair.
1: But I always liked that he would sit there and try. Just, yeah, I mean... It was a beatdown. That Bob Beckel will be joining us. He is the author of a new book. I should be dead. My life surviving politics, TV, and addiction. It really is, I think, an incredibly uh, moving story, personal story about his life. He was raised abused as a child, went through a lot of trials, um, but then had an incredible political career. And everyone would think, "Man, he made it to the big town." He's he's a deputy. What was it? Deputy Secretary of State. And was you know, in the Carter administration, all these different things, and yet had addiction, could not get away from certain problems, and uh, he's here to talk about the fall and then uh, where he found the peace, where he saw the light. So we'll be talking with Bob Beckel in just a few moments, uh, but before we do, we got to talk about what's going on in Paris, France. Tragedy, um, again, it's it's echoes of 9/ eleven, right? It's terrorism, and it's back. If you thought you were safe, you're not. But this one has a lot of just interesting little nuances. Um 123 people
2: arrested in 186 raids overnight. Yeah. That's crazy. They're just they're they're walking back evidence, finding anyone attached, anyone adjacently attached and it's like you're on home lockdown, we'll come back to you and they move on to the next one and they just make sure they have all the people uh kind of corralled and then they will go yeah. back and try to figure out how many people were involved. What they think is that there were, I saw yesterday about three different groups in whatever, you know, dis- obvi- it seemed like there was a time to, you know, say like 8 o'clock, go let's down. go. Yeah. And they had the explosions in front of the soccer stadium. Yeah. They had, uh, what was, a, a restaurant was attacked. Mm-hmm. And then it moved, there were some other attacks also, and then it moved to the concert hall that we all heard about. Yeah. With the uh, the, the American rock band, band that was having that was a, a show there. And so all these things happened. And with the way it moved, with they had rental cars, they had all these weapons. They're thinking that, I mean, there was the people involved, but then they're thinking there was some it sort was of a support structure sure. of some kind, and they're trying to find those people. And in fact, they
1: found, they pulled over, the one person they were looking for, uh, They they pulled him
2: over on the way back to Belgium, and they didn't arrest him. They detained him for a few hours and they let him go. Uh-huh. I bet and now I, I, I was reading; they think they have that gentleman that they uh, they pulled over yeah. in a home in Belgium, kind of surrounded by police. They have bullhorns out and they're negotiating, trying yeah, to get yeah. him out of the house, type of thing. But uh, mm. it's yeah, tragic. and then Belgium, there were several arrests made. Apparently, that is a uh, a place where a lot of pe- radicalized individuals have come out of in right. recent months, and so they've been trying to focus that. I was reading also. Um, In Belgium, they put out a release about a month ago saying that they feel a lot of these people who are uh, sympathetic Mm -hmm. towards ISIS, radicalized maybe, uh, are using different apps that that, uh, have like the self-deletion feature, like a WhatsApp. Yeah, yeah and it said specifically they're using PlayStation 4s that's what i heard I? and then whatsapp to and so in the
1: middle they can go play a PlayStation game where they're blowing people up and talk about blowing people up and no one can
2: track it or trace it and yeah mm. unless you're on that you have to be, pick that specific game to watch to yeah, be able to watch very the conversation one game yeah. and watch the conversation which is a needle in a haystack and then WhatsApp you send the message and it disappears it disappears and that's how it's built that's how it's set up 129 people killed so far hundreds 350 plus injured
1: 90 of those they believe are are very seriously injured so it's it's just it's tragic and it's going to force a lot of people are going to be thinking yeah
2: we need to we need to do something but the thing is what do you do france launched apparently uh, in the last Three to six months. They've had eighteen bombing missions. On Sunday, they ran 20. 20. 20 bombing missions. So that's, I guess, that's the need to do something. But you know, like we heard with our guest last hour, they still it doesn't necessarily. It, only, it maybe only enforces the ideology. France, uh, they shut down their borders, which yeah. was interesting because flights were still leaving the hmm. air, uh, the airport. You oh, know, oh, so either. it wasn't like yeah. all, it wasn't like they shut down all air travel. And they state of emergency. Mm-hmm. There was you know, police and soldiers and military on the streets and so just this heightened state. And they've asked for it to be extended mm-hmm. as they're still looking for people who may be connected with the attacks. Oh, it's just crazy. My sister lived there and it's devastating. The, you know these places. You know these people. And they said uh, uh, some people talking. It was interesting the type of places you, you they went after. They weren't. Uh, politically oriented, they weren't say you yeah, know people. Like it wasn't of any like sort Charlie of Hebdo
1: offices. Yeah, it a was, year ago.
2: It was a place where people would have been on a Friday night, restaurants, well, you know, theaters. They're at a soccer game, and a, and a big percentage of like in the
1: in the the concert that was blown up and attacked a lot. A large percent of those were Muslim. Hmm. So they're like these are young. These are just young people at a nightlife having fun and. It didn't matter. It was indiscriminate. It Didn't matter who they were killing. Just kill. That's terrorism
2: at its core, I guess. Yeah, and it's effective because then the entire world stopped and watched. Well, I mean, ha- I mean, we had the explosions in Beirut last week. Yeah, and people barely Nobody noticed. Nobody pays attention. But you blow up Paris, and the people a Western cha- country, then people change their Facebook icons to the Well, French and luckily
1: flag. now you've got for all of the candidates on both sides of the party now they can all now they have to address this. Which is weird because it's apparently Donald Trump's ratings are going up because he's talking hard nose, and this is why we can't just have immigration. Yeah. You got to tighten your borders. Um, and then now Hillary Clinton's got to, you know, determine what's her position. Is
2: and it, and Barack it, Obama being strong enough or is he too weak? And then it takes over the discussion of, you know, taxes, education, there we go. employment, all these other things. All we're going to talk about is terrorism. And that's what dominated the last election cycle. Also, interesting. Oh my heavens! Any other
1: headlines going around in the news
2: that Multiple. we need to worry about? A lot of it has to do uh, in conjunction with uh, with Paris. One of the men who attacked Paris had an emergency passport or a similar dark doc- document, according to unnamed French senator who was briefed by the French Ministry. Of Interior, the senator told CNN the bomb falsely identified the bomber falsely identified himself was allowed to enter Greece October third. From there, there, he moved to Macedonia, then Serbia, then Croatia, where he managed to re- register in a res- refugee camp. The lawyer said eventually. He made his way to Paris, where he was one of three men who blew themselves up outside the soccer stadium. That's the passport uh, they found outside the soccer stadium. So, they, so they've been able to track the guy from Syria all the way through. So he waited in all of those other countries to get in. Apparently. If that was the passport. Atta- they, what they're saying is the passport yeah. did it. Now they're trying to confirm, and I think they have confirmed, at least initially, that the bomber is attached to that, that passport. Uh, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Representative Devin Nunes shared his concerns on Face the Nation about the difficulty of tracking terrorism.
4: I really think we should take to heart what FBI Director Comey has been saying over and over again, and that is that we are losing the capability to track these terrorists around the globe. And
2: this goes back to the apps and the different technologies that are out there that make it so you can't crack them, so that intelligence services can't snoop in there. Mm. And the intelligence services want to, so they can try to stop this. Following Friday's terror attacks in Paris, which killed 132 people, and France's bombing of targets of uh, Syria Sunday in retaliation, ISIS made threats against other nations that have participated in airstrikes against the caliphate, suggesting that Russia, as well as Rome, London, and Washington, D.C., are at risk. On Monday, those threats became even more specific in a video, uh, Reuters reports, while the News service has been unable to verify the authenticity of the video. It was posted on a website where ISIS commonly posts its messages. So Mm. threats are out there. On Monday, a a U.S. A-10 attack airplanes and AC-130 gunships attacked a fleet of trucks. The Islamic State had been using to smuggle oil out of Syria, a major source of income for the militant group. According to initial assessments, the U.S. aircraft destroyed 116 of the 295 trucks at the facility in Syria. The New York Times reports... ISIS used, its, ISIS used its fleet of about 1,000 tanker trucks to earn up to $40 million a month to fund its operations. So hmm. taking that out would be, would be helpful. Um, in other news, Russian President Vladimir Putin and U.S. President Barack Obama talked to each other for uh, more than 30 minutes at an informal meeting on the sidelines of the Group of 20 summit that's going on in Turkey yeah, that seemed. Did you see those pictures? Those that, pictures. That was interesting. They're all, they're all sitting around, huddled. huddled together. That's amazing. Kind of in a four-year area of a hotel. My my son, my fourteen-year-old son, was like, "Look how intense they look." I'm like, you have what Obama and Putin like face yeah, to face, face. To, on the side. There's probably they're probably translators yeah. in case there's something that doesn't quite go across straight. <laughs> they can they can because they <laughs> both Clarify they can it. both sure. speak. Um, so uh, they all got together. The president and two of his associates. Could be seen in an intense huddle, group of chairs, around a coffee table uh, in this meeting. The White House reports that two leaders discussed Syria, Ukraine, and President Obama offered his condolences for last month's air metro crash. Oh, yeah. Or metro air crash, excuse me.
1: Man, I forgot about
2: that. I mean, now, add that to the Paris thing. And that was
1: 200 people that died on the airplane. Which is, again, if this – they're retaliating against everybody that's bringing on the airstrikes. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. Oh, the tangled web we weave. Interesting. We're going to take a break, folks. Uh, When we come back, a wonderful guest will be joining us. uh, Bob Beckel, we're going to get him on the phone. He is the CNN now, the current uh, CNN political commentator, formerly a host of The Five on Fox News Channel. You may know him as the Democrat uh, amidst the Republicans taking a stand and uh, trying to fight him off a bit on the show The Five. But he's going to be talking about a book that he wrote, a new book called I Should Be Dead, My Life Surviving Politics, TV, and Addiction. He's had an incredibly hard life. And uh, he's going to talk about how he how he's pulling himself out of addiction. It's a, It's a very, very interesting story. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, many would consider the high life to be one of fame and fortune, a successful career, maybe some time in the spotlight, the golden glitz of a superior media and political presence. However, more can often turn out to be the gilded cage instead of a life of ease. Our guest today has experienced the highs and lows of navigating a politically and socially successful career. Bob Beckel was joining us. He's a CNN political commentator and the former host of The Five on Fox News, where the poor guy had to take on one uh, one you know Democrat, taking on four Republicans, had to have been enough to drive anyone to addiction. He wrote a book that's entitled, I Should Be Dead, My Life Surviving Politics, TV and Addiction to tell us his life story, and uh, we're so excited to have him. Bob Beckel, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show.
5: Well, Matt, it's nice of you to have me. I appreciate it very much.
1: You bet. I'm honored to have you. And I, I heard about this book in on an interview you were doing, and it just, I think, is an amazing story, Bob. When you People know you. They've seen you have to beat down the rest of the five and just try to take on uh, you know, being a political commentator, but very few people know about your life, your personal life, and uh, and how you you kind of slid into addiction. Why don't you Why don't you just start off? Talk to us about first of all, why would you write a book, Bob that that explores all of this personal side of your life?
5: Well, I tell you, man, I'm a, I'm a firm believer. I've been sober now for 15 years, uh, and in the process of getting sober, one of the things we learn is the secrets that we keep all of us are corrosive
6: mm. and
5: the sooner i got them out the better i would be and i wanted my kids to be older before i put this out on the street but you know for a guy that people see on tv and and uh, consider a political analyst and I probably don't agree with many of my political views but uh they don't realize that i've uh, prior to that i've been shot i've been stabbed i've been in two car wrecks where everybody died and i mm. didn't uh and uh i actually opened the book with a scene from uh, J- January 19, 2001, when I was at a bar in southern Maryland, a biker bar, and I, I was talking to this woman at the bar, and I turned around, and, I, and a guy had a 45 stuck right in my face. Holy cow. He, pulled, and he And he pulled the trigger, and he hadn't chambered the bullet, however, didn't go off. Somebody grabbed him from behind, and there was a three-foot hole in the ceiling. Oh, man. And they threw me out of the parking lot, and uh, just before I passed out, I said, God, I don't know if I believe, but uh, I promise you this, this will be the last drink I ever have, and it was. Was it? Uh, I woke up in the psychiatric ward of the George Washington University Hospital in the VIP room. Only, Mar- uh, only Washington would have a VIP room. That's for right. but In any, any event, <laughs> I then went off to Hazelton and got sober and then have, have uh, looked back over my life and all the things that have happened to me, uh, good and bad. But during the day... What I call the light world. I had a very successful career. I was doing races, political races, and winning a lot. Uh, I was the youngest Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in history. Right. In fact, the, the day they called me on that, I was at a beach, and somebody said, "You want to be the a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State?" And I said, "Of which state?" And they said, "The United States of America." I said, "Oh, oh, wow!" And then I went to work. Then I went to work in the White House uh, with uh, President Carter. And so during the day, I was just. You know, Bob Beckel doing my job, and I thought I did it pretty well. But at night, I'd go into the dark world, and the dark world was where I felt comfortable because it was of people like me who were drunks and, and, or drug addicts, who had been, many of whom had been abused. And that's really the story here. It started out for me with a very abusive uh, family. My dad used to throw me down the stairs on a regular basis. and I, You know, they, they said about people coming from dysfunctional families that you really had no chance. Uh, that you were probably destined to be a failure, but you know you survive in those situations. you learn how to talk fast, how to cut deals, how to lie on occasion, and when you get out you 've got those survivor skills perfectly suited by the way for politics <laughs> yeah, I was uh, going to say hey, right and i uh and I went to Washington and i uh tried uh my hand in politics, and I got quite successful at it and i and i was uh but still at night I started drinking more and more, and I started to use drugs and uh I was um, you know, there comes a time in your life, uh, I think every drunk will tell you this, that you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. But I, I kept thinking to myself, I've been saved. I was in two car wrecks where everybody else was killed except for me. Hmm. And uh, I finally began to realize that maybe it wasn't luck, and maybe it was grace. Uh, and I began to think about that, and a very good friend of mine, a very conservative columnist named Cal Thomas, yeah. Uh, he and I did a TV show together, and he said, Bob, can you talk to me after the show? You don't look very happy. And I said, well, not I, I did. We sat down for three hours, and he said, do you believe in God? And I said, you yeah, know, Frankie I can't touch it, feel it, or see it, I, I you know, where I come from, I, I really don't. Well, he said, well, you mind if I send you some, some material? And I said, no, I was living on a farm in Western Maryland. And he sent me, the first book he sent me was The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And it it was a historically-based book, and uh, I read it, and I was intrigued. Hmm. And then things began to happen. And then Cal finally got me to go to church, which I wasn't.
1: Oh, that's great.
5: Yeah, and it went to the Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland, which is very conservative, very Republican. And when I walked in slightly (laughs) late, you should have heard, you should have seen that.
1: Were were there gasps?
5: (laughs) Oh, Oh, man, I'll tell you, it was unbelievable. I couldn't wait to get to the seat next to Cal. I said, Cal, you're going to give me protection to get out of here? Uh, this is going to be dangerous. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I went, and there was a, there was a preacher who who stood up. And I never listened very well, but he started to preach the word, and, and I listened carefully. And I, I thought to myself, you know, maybe there is something to this. And slowly but surely, it wasn't a burning bush experience, but slowly but surely, I began to come to faith. And the, one of the messages in the book is, first of all, if I could do it, you can do it. Yeah. Uh, but secondly, without faith, you can't do it. I've never seen anyone recover from drugs and alcohol who have not accepted God in their lives. And I I uh, uh, believe that firmly, because for, for me, when I say I should be dead, I should be. Every day is a pass for me. It's a free one. And I, based on my spiritual condition, and I, uh, so nothing much bothers me anymore. I mean, I, I don't, uh, you know, if I'm supposed to really died it probably would bother me, but you know, I just don't think there are many big deals. And when when you talk about the kingdom of of heaven and and you think about politics, uh, it's not close. You know.
1: Right. No. So, it, uh, I mean, is yeah. is it hard for you, Bob? To, um, I mean, because you also you you were on Fox News and you hear a lot of people that seem to say the right things. Uh, politicians, for example, that say they're real godly and god-fearing, and I mean, but in a weird way, you you were you're kind of ostracized for being a non-believer, and yet you're a believer, and others are elevated for being a believer, even though they're full of it.
5: Yeah, I I often uh, would ask politicians after I came to faith, and I, and I read uh, the Bible a lot. I I'd ask them questions, and they'd always trip up on it, you know, and they, yeah. and they'd tackle you couldn't possibly be. Uh, understand the Bible. I said, I read it every day through uh, at least 10 times. But I'll tell you a quick story. I was at a a conservative organization, uh, invited me to do a book review for Hugh Hewitt, who Uh is a uh, conservative radio talk show host in California. And Hugh uh, was saying that the reason that the country was going to become all red, all Republican was, among other things, that the Democrats didn't believe in God. And he said, you know, I am a literal interpreter of the Bible, says you. And then he said, and so is my friend down here in the front, a Catholic priest named Bill. And I stopped him right there, and I said, all right, let me ask you all a question. If, you, if you're you a literal interpreter of the Bible, Bill, are you literally literal interpreter of the Bible? Yes, okay. I said, well, then answer me this one question. On whose church did Christ build his, his, uh, or on what did Christ build this?" church because the Catholics believe is on this rock of Saint Peter mm-hmm. and Protestants believe it's the rocks that are out there among all believers. So uh they it was a moment where they both froze and they were shocked <laughs> that I knew like, I How does
1: Bill know, know this? this. <laughs> that's funny yeah, Bob.
5: Exactly. Yeah. So I uh, uh you know I, I do um, I do a lot of work with the alcoholics and addicts and, and I really don't like like them very much. I must have been liked them, I hope hope I wasn't but I uh, you know, I keep trying to tell them that I can't force faith on you, but I certainly can tell you my own experience, strength, and hope. And that experience kept me alive. Hmm. And uh, and I'm here because God wants me to be here to deal with you. And uh, uh, I do, you know, I talk about my addictions on TV, and I get hundreds and thousands of letters from people who have problems. Yeah. You know, out there, out there there are thousands of alcoholics and addicts who are, desperate to get well, and uh, I'm hopeful, and one of the reasons I said those things on TV was, one, I figured that the conservatives would out me anyway, so uh, right. it was about my history, but secondly, I wanted to see if people could get some help from it, and a lot did, so that was that was very helpful. And Well, it seems uh, like the, the more
1: you talk, time. Bob, the more lives you're helping, because there there isn't a really great, you know, comeback story of... Of somebody that's that's had such a hard life and still made it work. I mean, especially in the political world, we need more stories like yours.
5: Well, I think that's that's really the point. I think that the message—it's not about politics. It's really not about TV. It's very much about uh, overcoming adversity. Uh, in my case, alcohol and and, uh, and cocaine, and and finding your way back uh, and finding uh, the comfort of God. And uh, that that will fill the hole that the alcohol and drugs filled before, and it is joyous, happy, and free is what you become. Yeah, I, I I want people to know that and there is hope. And, are, are there ma- I, uh,
1: are there many say. believers, Bob, in in press in the media um, that just uh, that just can't come out and say it, but they believe it?
5: Well, there are some. There are not many, to be honest with you. I. I uh, He's, I'm always a little leery about people bringing religion and faith into yeah. politics. Anyway, I, you know, uh, it, it, Jesus said, uh, "Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's," and, and 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 I don't I don't think that you know this world we live in this very fallen world uh, to bring and evoke invoke the uh, uh, faith as a reason to elect somebody is just absolutely ridiculous. Hmm. I, I, you know, I'll tell you another quick story. I was doing. Uh, uh, when I started in politics, it was just as Watergate happened. And uh, I got a job with a liberal think or liberal consulting firm, and Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon 30 days before the election in 1974. And that it was, people were outraged, and uh, the Democrats went on to win a landslide. And I won seats that I never should have won. They should have been Republican seats. So I always thanked Ford for doing that. And mm. I saw him in the 90s. Uh, at a golf tournament, the President's Cup, and I walked up to him, and I'd met him before, but I said, Mr. President, I want to thank you for making my political career And But why did, why did you pardon Richard Nixon? He looked at me very, very seriously. And he said, Bob, the country needed to heal. And I thought to myself, I just felt like an idiot. You know, I mean, yeah. I kept thinking to myself, what, this is a man who knew what was going to happen. He was yeah. a smart fellow. And but yet he he thought that healing and getting started on it was very important. So uh, I I began to review my political life then, and that's really when I started that politics, and then and more into television. So
1: well, I think I, to me it's it's super fun to be talking to you because I, I've always been a fan. Just that you would dare, you're just so gutsy. It's amazing. And then I I love – I don't love everything about your politics, but I don't love anybody's politics, quite honestly. And I sit there and I think Bob still dares to sit there and say it. He says what he believes and he – he's willing to take the beat down i didn't and i never knew about this side of your life um so i'm excited to find out more let's take a break bob we're speaking with bob beckel and uh cnn uh, correspondent political correspondent will come back continue the discussion of his book i should be dead my life surviving politics tv and addiction more with bob beckel after the break this is the matt townsend show Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. The name of the book is I Should Be Dead, My Life, Surviving Politics, TV, and Addiction, and uh, in the end, uh, written by Bob Beckel, and he, I'm sure you've, you've seen him. You know him as a CNN uh, political commentator. He's also a former host of The Five on Fox News Channel and uh, the author of this and other books. Um, he wrote another book with uh, this Cal Thomas, his friend that he was talking about that helped him Find uh, the peace of God and uh, Bob. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Great to have you on.
5: Well, thank you, Matt. you nice. Know, nice to have me.
1: And it's truly, uh, I think it's it's a weird time with the whole uh, thing that's going on with Paris. What what do you think? You know, as a seasoned commentator, uh, somebody also that worked in the um, in the State Department. What, what what comes over your mind when you think of what's going on in Paris? And and just and and then too, I guess how our political candidates are are all you know positioning over it.
5: Well, I'm I'm a little uh, uh, upset that uh, most of our political candidates avoid uh, the Islamic radical movement because they don't want to accuse of being Islamophobic.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: When I was on TV, I took them on all the time. You know, they they have seventy five thousand uh, student visas are issued to Muslims. Every year, and two years ago, uh, fifteen thousand never showed up at the school they were supposed to go to, Mm. and they've never been found. I'm not suggesting they're all out there getting ready to bomb, but uh, it is. And I suggest we take a two-week or two-year sabbatical and find these people, and then start it up again. Well, you'd have (laughs) thought you know attacked. I I mean, I just got it from every direction, and uh, I just don't understand why it is that if our Western culture is something that is uh, corroding the uh, Islamic culture. Why do they move here?
1: Yeah, why do they want why to be here?
5: Move? Why would they want to be here? Why would they want to go to Western Europe as much as they do? Uh, and I think it's pretty simple. There is a radical element of Islam, which, by the way, moderates, to the extent there are many, are not willing to denounce, which always got me very upset. Uh, and they are back to their caliphate you know back when when their greatest reach was they reached spain most of all of europe and i think they want to reconstruct that again and then they want to come back to the united states because they think that we're uh, uh the great satan uh, in fact i was over in in uh Iraq, iran rather the uh just three days before Khomeini came back oh, wow. the radical head of the uh, cleric of, of uh, Iran. Right. And I had taken a congressional delegation over there, and we were in the International Hotel Intercontinental, and there must have been 400,000 people below our windows yelling, death to America!" Ooh. So I turned to the military and I said, "Voices, uh, I think it's time we just load up and leave. Yeah. We did. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it, look, it, it's a cultural clash of major proportions. There are people there that want to see Israel wiped out, and they want to see the United States wiped out, and they have to be dealt with. I mean, it's difficult for my liberal friends give me trouble with this all the time. But I, my point is, if all the worst are over there in one area, maybe now is the time to do it.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, and also, I'm I'm very leery about you know continuing to build mosques in this country until we have at least uh, an obvious uh, group of Muslims who are opposed to what these people are doing. Yeah, and and being they vocal. Wanting to do that. Yeah, to be vocal, and I think they're afraid. Yeah. Or they they agree with him. I mean, that's one of the, the, the two options, as far as I can tell. So, well,
1: what do you uh, – do you sorry. sense that there is – there a politician, is there a candidate on either side of the aisle that that talks straight about any of this?
5: No. No, I don't, I don't think politicians talk straight about many things. I've been around too many. Yet, right? <laughs> you know, I, I think that they they are all – I mean, part of Donald Trump's attraction was in the Southern was he said whatever he wanted to say, right. and, and he was – expressing the views of a lot of people, particularly working-class white Americans. And he was saying things they wanted to say. Well, the problem was they were so outrageous that eventually it started to begin to catch up with me. But nonetheless, um, you know, there there is a political dialogue in this country has gotten down to now to totally negative. When I started in politics, if I had 10 percent of my TV ads that I did were uh, were negative, that was a lot. Most of them were positive. Now it's the other way around. Uh, the cost of campaigns. Uh, when I started out, you could do a congressional campaign for $150,000. It's now a million, yeah. and, and the Senate race is $20 million. So, I, you know, it, it's, it's corrosive in every way possible. And, I, and I'm frankly glad to be out of it. And I think the press has taken a beating, particularly by Republicans, but they've got to stick to it. And yeah. that's hard question. And, uh, you know, this is not easy. I've said to some of these candidates for president, most of whom I know on both sides, Look, I came. I, I am a man of faith. I can't. I used to be on pro-choice boards of a number of different organizations. I could not justify pro-choice after I found faith. I yeah. just couldn't. Uh, yeah. And I, I became a strong right to life. But I didn't. I didn't advertise it. I didn't. I just quietly got off the boards uh, that I was on. But uh, there are certain things that you just have to accept as as absolutes, and that's one of them. And and uh, politicians have got to accept the fact that these people are trying to kill us. And mm-hmm. uh, we have to stop them somewhere or another.
1: How else does faith play a role in your life now, Bob? I mean, it's, uh, they you know, once an addict, always an addict. You're fighting it every day. Is Is—is yeah. it, um, how else do you use your faith to to kind of just negotiate some of the darker sides of just the political world or the media world?
5: Well, that's a good question. I, 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 uh, I go to meetings, A meetings, three or four times a week, and I sponsor a lot of people. And I and I talk to them about faith and why it's so important to to have faith, or you're not going to stay sober, you're not going to stay clean. I go into the some the, of the most dangerous ghettos in Washington because I used to be there. Mm. Right? But I was a practicing addict to haul people out of crack houses and other places into treatment. So I use it heavily by faith. As a basis for my work with, with uh, people who have addiction, I do uh, uh, interventions, i a trained interventionist, which are very difficult to do. But I talk about faith a lot very that. But more than that, I think that, uh, you know, I grew up with a father who uh, was a very bad drunk, a very medium drunk, not necessarily his fault. There were four generations of him. But uh, I, and I had a father who I really hated when I was a kid. Now, when he got sober later on, he was a great dad. But, mm. you know, now I have a father that loves me unconditionally. Yeah. And that, to me, is one of the great saving graces of all. And I, so when I'm in trouble, and I've been, I just went through a 10 and a half hour back operation oh. uh, for years of playing football. And, and uh, I woke up the second night after the operation. These two doctors are saying, should we take the leg off above the knee or below the knee? Oh, and I man. said, are you gentlemen talking about me? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, well, no, 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 no. The second opinion is coming here. I put a mayo, and they got a, They got stimulated. It'll be a year and a half, but it's, uh, you know, you wonder why it is that, that God allows you to go through these difficult times. And this has been a very tough year for me. And I, uh, I'm i absolutely persuaded that, first of all, he didn't guarantee you a free ride. Right, uh, no. You, you know, he gave you your self-will, and, and some people— will uh is bad. There are bad people, there are evil people in the world. And uh so but he did say that I want you to, to love your neighbor as as you love yourself. There are certain things that are basic mm-hmm. and I try to practice that as much as I can. And I also talk to God a lot during the day. I mean I just start driving around or something and I so I try to um continually keep it in front of me because if I don't do that I quickly lose Connection and same thing with alcohol. If I don't go to meetings, I or if I don't work with, with uh, alcoholics, I, we call it keeping it green. I can see it every day, yeah, and reminds me of where I was. And so, um, I think faith, uh, sort of in that part of my life is very big. And in my own personal life with my kids, uh, fortunately, my children never saw me drunk because they weren't old enough for the worst parts of how it. How
1: many kids do you have, Bob?
5: I have I have two. I have a daughter who's uh, at Boulder, in Colorado, and a son around here where I live. And and uh, they're good kids with big hearts. But my son's an alcoholic, uh. and uh, he goes to meetings. He's clean right now. But you know, I explained to him when he was very young. You come from a long series of generations, four of them, right, uh, that uh, have alcoholism, and, and you you are a target. You know, my dad had. Uh, three brothers and a sister, and they were all Ivy League graduates, and all of them were drunks. My sister Barbara, I and mean, my Aunt Barbara was a poet, published in New York City, checked into a flophouse with a case of Jenna and dragged herself to death. Oh. My Uncle Frank was an internist, a doctor in North Carolina, who got sclerosis of the liver, and he couldn't save it. It was very painful. He got his twin brother, Bill, to come down and euthanize him, uh, to give him a shot and kill him. Oh, wow. And then he walked... And then, and then Bill walked into the woods of North Carolina was never seen again. And my favorite Uncle Sam, who spoke seven languages fluently, could play concert piano by ear, died a drunk in the streets of Dayton, Ohio. So, uh, you know, it, it, I tell my children that this is something that's lurking, and it is a disease. Some of it's social, that's true. Uh, but it's
1: a and disease. I mean, that's, that's what you're hearing, right? Is a disease being handed down generation to generation.
5: That's right, and it doesn't get better. I mean, it, it's... Uh, and, and now I'm on a, a new project, which I think is important for your listeners, yeah. for everybody. And that is a Time Magazine ran a cover story about three months ago saying the new American addiction may be the worst addiction ever. And that is the use of these massive pain pills, Oxycontin right, and Percocet. And people get hooked on those things very easily. Yeah. And then once they can't afford to pay for it, doctors won't prescribe them, street prices are 50 bucks a pill. So they turned to heroin. There's a heroin epidemic in America. You know, heroin used to be a ghetto drug. And now it's everywhere. And right. uh, all of this you can trace back. You know, last year there were more people who died of overdoses from uh, prescription uh, pain pills uh, than did in car accidents. Uh, and now it's the children that we're, we're focusing on. We started a program in Southern California called Pain-Free Kids. And uh, the doctor, the, the, the doctor Prescoff, who's the of it uh, is a firm believer that most pain in children, chronic pain, when they get to be in their teens, is not pain from something in like the body, but rather from early childhood trauma. Sure, and it and it manifests itself in pain. And so we're trying now. The FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, in their wisdom, <laughs> decided to approve OxyContin for children eleven to seventeen. Oh man! Yeah, so here we go. And, and we, we've just got to deal with this because it, it's it, we are breeding a nation of addicts and. I don't blame the doctors. I mean I think think somebody in front of them, bloody blame and they you know they treat them as best they can but I I, uh, I just uh, am so frightened about it. Yeah, you it seems see like it, the, every
1: day. it seems like the more uh you know the more socially acceptable addiction because you're not yeah. you're not doing heroin at first you're not doing meth or crack you're doing prescription drugs but it's because you know my leg I had a bad leg and da-da-da. all the next thing we know we're addicted, and the next thing we know, we're on heroin. It's it's a big it's a big issue, isn't it? In fact, we need to have you back eventually on that topic, Bob, because...
5: Yeah, I think we really need to talk about this, man. It's very important. It's going around... Every place I go and I talk about it, there's somebody in the audience, everybody in the audience knows somebody who's got this problem. Yeah. When I was at Betty Ford at the Peyton Hensley Clinic, people were coming in addicted who never drank before, never smoked before, right. perfectly good citizens, and the next thing they know, they're addicts, so... Uh, it's something that needs to be done.
1: What would you say as we wrap it up, Bob, what hope would you give, uh, the average guy out there that's listening, maybe driving, maybe a truck driver, maybe is, you know, knows that when he gets to his next stop, he's going to start drinking and partying tonight, but, but wants to get out of it, has family at home, doesn't want to continue this legacy. What would you say to help him get out of this life?
5: Well, if you're, if you're an active alcoholic or an addict, you've said to yourself a hundred times, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired the next day. And, but there's no hope because you've tried to stop and you haven't been able to do it. Uh, the only way you can stop is with other alcoholics and addicts who have recovered or in recovery who understand what you're thinking about, who've been through it, and can talk to you about it. They're not going to trust somebody who's never had an addiction. Right. <laughs> and, I, and I would point out to them that no how much ad, uh, adversity they have in their lives, the answer is not to use drugs and alcohol, the answer is to use God to get you through it and, and they, they may rebel at that at first but in time, if I could have the time to spare, share my experience strength and hope with people, and I do that a lot uh, I see people and I see progress, it's little but it's there and, and, I, and you could if I could do it if Bob Beckel could do it, going through what I did mm-hmm. uh, uh, and if I could still be alive then you
1: can do it. That's great advice. Bob Beckel, we appreciate you. Uh, God bless you. Keep up the great, uh, healthy recovery of that back, too.
5: Thank you very much, Matt. Excellent. Thank you. God
1: bless you. Thank you. Take care. Bob Beckel, the book is I Should Be Dead, my uh, 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 My Life Surviving Politics, TV, and Addiction. It's interesting. All of them could be addictive, right? Politics, TV, and your addictions. Great story. Great story. Comeback story, too, folks. Everybody, um, everybody's got some hope out there. What a cool thing when he finally found God and actually said, you know, now I know I've got a healthy father that loves me. Um, Pretty powerful option. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Wrap up the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, man, great interview with Bob Beckel. Really, he's been through it all, and, and half the stuff we didn't even talk about. Um, some of it, you know, may not even be appropriate for your kids to hear, for heaven's sakes. But, uh, I don't know, I, I love a story where, you know, everybody thinks one thing about Bob Beckel when you watch him on Fox News back in the day. You might think, ah, oh, these bleeding liberals, but yeah, you got to be careful of being too quick to judge, right? Because in the end, we may not have a clue what somebody is really like until we get deeper, deeper into uh, who they truly are. So, anyway, Bob Beckel, an amazing story too. In in he brought up in the addiction, we do need to watch out for these prescription drugs. More and more people are are using them, thinking you know it's a kinder, gentler type of addiction, but it's not because it will eventually lead you like you said onto heroin and on other drugs that in the end will also you know take their toll so think about it um when you when you get into your own uh you know your own life, your own addictions, your own problems with uh you know your career. Be careful. We got. We all have to watch out for the 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 problems that can come around. Um, one of the things that I found recently, I, I did a uh, a date night a while ago, and found th- that the Serenity Prayer, which is the prayer that so many of them uh, quote at uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, there's so much in that basic little concept that most of us, I don't think, no, listen to listen to this prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You know, we've all heard that part of the serenity prayer. But have you heard this part, this is the prayer as it continues. Living one day at a time, This is how we overcome an addiction, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as he did the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make things all right if I will surrender to his will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and ever in the next life. Do you live one day at a time? Do you enjoy one moment at a time? Do you accept your hardships, as as Bob was talking about, as a pathway to peace? Do you take this sinful world for what it is, not what you would have it be? Are you just going to accept your life as it is? Are you willing to just accept it and surrender yourself to him? Anyway, there's a lot of power in one simple prayer, isn't there? And it's turned around the life of Bob Beckel. Who would have thunk it? Cool. Remember, we're trying to show you the good in the world. It comes in all shapes, sizes. It comes in all affiliations. It's everywhere. And, uh, man, if we could all just accept things that we can't change and find the peace in the things that we can't change, man, life would be totally different. We'll take a break. Hour number two right there, complete. We'll be back next hour. More ideas to help you uh, live in this crazy world. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Good morning, everybody. Top of the morning to you. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side, doing what we can to uh, help you you know, make it through this crazy thing we call life, and uh, where else to start? We got to start with Paris. It's it's the news. Uh, One hundred twenty nine people dead because of the attacks uh, all over Paris. Nineteen nationalities. Oh, really? That's Nineteen what, different nationalities. That's what Paris is reporting, yeah. Ah, uh, and it's it's changing things, right? I mean. It's one thing to worry about ISIS. It's another thing to have your hometown bombed again. Well, this is the third incident
2: in in France, yeah, in a year. And the uh, the incident on that tra- on the train that was just a few months back, where the yeah. uh, the right. guys from Sacramento tackled the guy. Apparently, the guy that sh- he he walked in with, you know, several uh, had of like a machine gun or yeah. something, some handguns. He came from this town in, in Brussels. Yeah. where they're looking for other people who are involved. Brussels is exporting a problem now.
1: Yes. All of Europe is going to be looking toward Brussels. But this also gets into a bunch of different areas, the Syrian refugee crisis, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people crossing borders into Europe, many, many, many going to Germany. The Germans have got to be terrified because – What is this going to start hitting Germany? But Germany hasn't been participating, I
2: guess, apparently in the bombing. But no. But I mean, they're talking about stepping up the vetting process of thousands of people that show up at your doorstep and want to get
1: in. And then this in a wild way, I think, will change our entire race. This will change the entire political race in the GOP and for the Democrats, because who's strong enough on terrorism? according to our last uh last hours guest bob beckel a political commentator for cnn none of them are i mean how do you how do you stop this i mean trump would say you close the borders or build a wall or, or build a wall france is closing their borders or they would like to close their borders and uh boy it's a lot harder than i think we make it look right it's not something that you can just You know, there's not a quick answer for it. But this is one of the reasons why so many Americans keep thinking, you know, you got to take the fight to ISIS where they are so that uh, the spread of this ideology, um, the jihadist, you know, extremist ideology won't spread. And apparently it's worked for years except – now it's not and is are the united states next this could just as easily happen in the united states right so should we be terrified um hmm. it's a horrible time to live many say this is a crazy time to live we're not safe many believe according to our next guest though we'll have uh, kim giles in uh studio with us in just a few moments we're going to be talking with her about an article she wrote that things in the world aren't as bad as you may think. And we're going to go through a bunch of different statistics that show, honestly, you're probably safer today than ever. And yet hearing the news over and over about Paris might make you not feel so safe. So Kim Giles uh, will be with us. She'll be uh, kind of guiding us through how to how to think through uh, this life and and having a healthier life. Also, um, we're going to be speaking with BYU Sports Nation in a, a little later in the hour about the BYU Missouri game. Find out uh, what they think about the whole thing. So close, so close, and yet uh, that was a that was a difficult ending there. So anyway, let's go uh, to Terry. Terry, anything going on in the headlines? Any new information we need to? pay attention to.
2: A uh, 23-year-old Cal State Long Beach student has been identified as the American killed by terrorists in Paris Friday night. Her name was uh, Na- Naomi Gonzalez. She was an exchange student at Strade School of Design in France. She They had a uh, memorial vigil on campus at Cal State uh, Long Beach for her last night. Two other Americans were injured. The State Department has not yet confirmed the number of U.S. casualties in The attack. Heavy-armed police officers descended on a Brussels neighborhood this morning in an unsuccessful search for a person of interest who is believed to have helped carry out the Paris terror attacks on Friday. Meanwhile, authorities in France announced that they have conducted sweeping police raids around the country overnight, detaining 23 people. Belgium has been an area of concern because the country has supplied ISIS with more fighters as a share of population than any other European nation. 40 per 1 million residents. Wow. Wow. So more come out of Belgium than any other country in Europe, and so that's an area of focus for the uh, the governments there. World leaders vowed Monday to boost intelligence sharing, cutting off terrorist funding, and strengthening border security in Europe as they sought to show resolve and unity following the deadly terror attacks in Paris. British Prime Minister David Cameron also announced plans to host a donor conference earlier early next year to raise significantly new funding to tackle the flood of refugees spilling out of Syria. U.S. President Barack Obama huddled with European leaders from France, Britain, Germany, Italy. And we talked earlier about he spoke with Vladimir Putin about all the uh, different issues surrounding Paris and other international uh, issues at hand. The U.S. and other countries are working to prevent, as uh, CIA Director John Brennan says, any other attacks. He goes, I certainly would not consider this a one-off event, Brennan said. He was speaking to the uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies. During its global security forum, he goes, this was not something that was done in a matter of days. This was something that was deliberate, carefully planned over the course of several months in terms of making sure that they had the operatives, the weapons, and the explosives with suicide belts. There's too much, too much working, moving parts to make this work. Logistics type things, too. Rental cars, all that kind of stuff. Completely other news. Yeah. A little bit lighter. A whole different book. Western Illinois University. They're known as the Fighting Leathernecks. Oh, really? Yes. Yes. Kind of an okay. odd name. Yeah. They have been engaging with political prediction polls for a decade. Since 1975, the school has managed to accurately predict the winner of every single presidential election. Really? How? Through their polling, through Just their data, through one their political poll, science can, department.
1: Is it one poll or is it a combination? It's of- usually
2: a combination of polls. They look at trends, look ah. at how people's... You know, people are well, shifting. It seems like the Leathernecks would be worth a lot of money right now. So, with the newest installment tallied in in the books, who does Western Illinois University believe will be taking the stage to declare victory November 8th, yes. of 2016? Who, who? That's who? the question. Who? Who? None other than President elect uh-huh. Bernie Sanders. Wow. With vice presidential candidate Martin O'Malley right by his side. Wow. The students at the school have predicted that Sanders would defeat Hillary Clinton in 22 out of a possible 26 primary states. Although the school predictive system has not been 100% accurate with choosing vice presidential candidates... Hmm. Or, or, and um, and also losing tickets. The school did nail Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan okay, for so 2012, they got that right. so they got that right. right. For the 2016 cycle, they predicted that Jeb Bush would, win the Republican nomination, select Marco Rubio, Rubio to run with him. Uh, did they not know that they don't like each other I'm now? I'm not sure. Okay. It says, however, the Bush-Rubio, is ex- that ticket is expected by the Western Illinois University to get demolished by Sanders and O'Malley, who would take home 404 electoral votes of the necessary 270. Wow. So just flatten. Was this before or after the Paris
1: attacks? Before. Yeah. That may change things. Yes.
2: There's, see, they put it out. There's different factors. Yeah. But at that moment, they thought Well, it's like because a democratic socialist
1: uh, may not bode so well post-Paris.
2: This may be true. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just, I just thought that was interesting. Interesting. Wow. They think Bernie Sanders. Interesting. Well, why do you need to vote?
1: The Leathernecks have already told you. Interesting stuff. Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Kim Giles from Clarity Point Coaching. Do you feel like the world is just falling apart, that it has never been less safe? Well, we're going to be talking to the pros, see if she can get us to shift our thinking on that. Uh, Maybe it's even safer than you've ever thought, but you got to be looking for it, right? We'll, We'll get into that. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you find the good in the world. We'll be right back with Kim Giles. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, in studio with us is Kim Giles, president and founder of Clarity Point Life Coaching, She's a popular coach, author, speaker, named one of the top 20 advice gurus in the country by Good Morning America. And also, uh, you know, is a writer that also gets beat up by your.
7: I get beat up a little every Monday when my column comes out.
1: There's a lot of negativity. People are really negative lately. Have yeah, you noticed this.
7: It, they are. And most of the people that like it don't take the time to write. No. It's the people that the, don't like it. That you, don't that, like what they do. Yeah.
1: But one of your articles that we wanted to talk about today was the things in the world aren't as bad as you think, because everybody hears about uh, what happened in Paris. It's horrible. But then we start thinking, see, yeah, life is horrible. It's falling around us. We're going to be terrorized. This could happen in my backyard. And we get freaked out. Well, and it's not just
7: Paris. The truth is that we've got access to news 24-7. And what drives the news is all the bad stuff. So they're putting it out all day long, all the things you should be worried about and scared of. And so we can start to think the world is falling apart. It's going down the drain and we can have all this fear and and stress about it and the reality is honestly the statistics the numbers all show that we're safer healthier and doing better than ever before than ever <laughs> than ever
1: then like for example you give a list life expectancy has gone up from 47 in 1950 people were expected to live to 47 yeah, in
7: 1950
1: 1950 to 70 in 2011
7: and I actually think it's higher. It's now. higher than that,
1: I think. It's yeah. Higher.
7: yeah.
1: Poverty rates are declining, even well, in low income countries. Even in
7: low income countries. A matter of fact, the, in countries like China and India, the, a billion people are out of poverty that it used to be. I mean, everywhere, yeah. things are going better. And it's interesting. We complain about the gas prices yeah. and that there's not enough low income jobs. But in reality, all those third world countries that are starting to do a little better. Are part of the reason there's more demand in the world for oil, right? And for low-paying jobs, and and so really a lot of those things are a sign that the world's doing better.
1: It's funny that we don't. We some complain. of us don't want to hear the sign. We don't want to. no, I mean, yeah, but my I, my job's not good. So it's, uh, there's a Tip O'Neill said all politics is local. <laughs>
7: Based on what you're experiencing, really.
1: So talk about the murder rate because that blew my mind.
7: Yeah. Murders are down around the world. And I mean almost by half of what they were in even 2001. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, by half. And and they're continuing to decline in 75% of the nations that keep statistics. Murders are going down. Uh, One of my (laughs) kids said, oh, but all those mass shootings we're having – but it's interesting, even though we're having more of those, the the normal murder rate right, is dropping. so much down that even with the mass shootings, we're still down. Amazing. Yeah. But racism's
1: and, out of control.
7: Well, you think? <laughs>
1: because I mean, Missouri, we have all these universities.
7: Yeah. R- really, and and it's still a big problem. Yeah, I'm oh, not it, it, saying no, it is. racism and hate aren't a problem. A lot of these things are still problems that we don't want to get complacent about. I'm not encouraging you to turn a blonde eye and think everything's wonderful. Racism is really real, but this is the least discriminatory era in history. Yeah. I mean, it is better than it used to be, I mean, there were
1: worse eras, right? (laughs) Yeah.
7: Yeah. And and as much as we fear all these big things, you know, being shot when we're at a movie or bee stings, hitting a deer on the highway – um all those kinds of things are way more dangerous than Isn't a lot of the stuff crazy? that we're afraid of. Yeah, rape, sexual assault, domestic violence is actually down and again, it's not that it's not a yeah. problem. No,
1: you, they're just not <laughs> counting it right. But I mean what it is is but it, there are improvements being made. It's there like humanity is being elevated. There but there's still junk, there's still problems.
7: But I, I did a little research on all the nonprofits and the amount of money that's being donated to charity and all the amazing people that are stepping forward now mm-hmm. trying to make a difference and change these things are making a difference. Yeah,
1: it's happening. It
7: is really happening. We we donated about three hundred and thirty three billion dollars to charity last year.
1: Oh my heavens! And and
7: that's you know just yeah. charitable giving. I mean. To nonprofits. So there's a lot of good people in the world that are doing good things, right. and we don't talk about them on the but news Then why
1: enough. does it seem so negative? Because if, especially if somebody's out there listening, they're like, I don't agree.
7: Yeah. And, and, it's partly because you watch the news too much. Yeah. And their bread and butter is the bad stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it's, maybe it needs to be, maybe it's like, you need to be negative. There's something if it, the story of it being negative fits your storyline.
7: Yeah. And on some level, it's kind of more fun to complain about all these big, oh, yeah. terrible things. You know, people get pulled in and we do have a negativity bias. Yeah. And You and I have talked yeah. about that before.
1: Humans need it or they, they'll die.
7: No, <laughs> They think you, they will.
1: Because <laughs> if you just had an optimism bias, you might historically back in the day – you might not see that, what, that lion that was coming charging you. You might see it as a big fuzzy cuddle pillow. Yes.
7: Yeah, so you're saying it might have helped <laughs> us survive to have a negativity yeah. bias.
1: Back in the day.
7: Back in the day. I don't think it does anymore. Oh. And, and the truth is what. Especially
1: if there's not negative data. You don't need to make up more negative data.
7: Yeah. I mean, if the there is a lion is charging I It's about it. what you're going to focus on. That's right. But, but the negativity bias says that the negative is going to affect your stress level and your psychology, the way you think and feel more so than the positive things you're exposed to.
1: Right. So don't worry about it. Yeah. Just only believe the negative. Get rid of the <laughs> Basically, negative. Basically, yeah. Get rid of the you, negative.
7: You normally will even miss a lot of the positive. Yeah. It'll be around you, but you won't see it. Because you're so drawn to the negative. So that's a big part of the problem. (laughs) That's huge. And I love this. Um, I don't even know who this is. Michael D. Montaigne. But he said this 500 years ago. My life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. (laughs) That was my favorite quote of the day. Sounds
1: delusional.
7: It does, but this is what we do. Because of the negativity bias, we're constantly focused on all the bad stuff that could happen.
1: That never does. So
7: we can be living under this dark cloud day and night, even though none of it is really real. Right. And I'm sure you've heard about the actual study they did that 85% of the things we're scared of never happened.
1: Oh, I haven't heard that.
7: They actually did a study. About
1: what you're concerned about. About what you're
7: concerned, what you're worried about. Eighty-five percent of them never happen, and of the fifteen percent that do, you always fare better going through them than you thought you would. Yeah, and there's really nothing worrying.
1: So the impact is not would have done to what, change
7: it. Yeah. <laughs> they were going to happen anyway.
1: It just ruins your today.
7: Absolutely ruins your day. <laughs> so you've got to decide every day really how you're going to experience what's going on. Yeah. Because if you want to be depressed and scared, boy, you You can can. go there.
1: But it doesn't change – what you're depressed about probably won't even happen. And if it does, it won't impact you because you'll handle it really well.
7: Yeah, and it won't be nearly as bad as you're afraid it will be.
1: We are – Bottom line. uh, That's that's one of the things I heard is that we are one of the only animals that uh, is in a state of chronic stress.
7: You know, I actually heard something funny the other day that that's because a gazelle, if a lion starts chasing it, right, it goes yeah, into that right. stress, fight or flight, right. and it runs like crazy to get, get away. Get away, get away, get away. But once it gets away, it's gone. Yeah. It lets it go. It's it like, doesn't spend yeah. all day dwelling no, on like what grass. happened and talking about it on Facebook and <laughs> reliving it that's over right. and over as you tell the story. And that's right. So it is. It's our... It's our our thinking capacity that's part of the problem here because we don't let stuff go.
1: Now, what about the people that just can easily let stuff go? And then there's people that that stresses out. Like, how can you can just let it go? We've got a big thing going on tomorrow. And (laughs) I'm like, relax. We'll figure it out tomorrow. Yeah. What's the hurry? I love
7: those people. Aren't they great? Yeah, but I know they stress everybody else out because you should be seeing it like I see it. That's right. You should be worried like I do.
1: It is. It's almost contagious. If I'm worrying, I want you worried.
7: Yes. Well, it validates me if you feel the same way I feel about it.
1: Oh, That's messed up because you're stressing each other out. I mean, it makes sense. It does. If you're you're in, you should be stressed if you live in uh, Paris today. That should stress you from what happened. I mean, that that's a normal stressor. Right. People died. You were at a place where they, you heard gunshots. That should be very stressful for you. It should. For the rest of us, we should maybe just feel compassion and love.
7: But you know what? Either way, right. you've got to decide if you're going to be scared all day yeah. about this. I mean, even for those who, who were experienced this, because all of us have had times when a bad tragedy. things yeah. are actually happening to us. But is it? Is it happening right this moment, or are you okay in this moment? Yeah,
1: now are you safe? Yeah, I mean, because
7: even even today they're okay.
1: Well, that's what the stress that's what the stress response was for was to get safe
7: immediately. And once in you're the moment.
1: safe in the moment, then. Your mind needs to turn to something else. So, you know, what will I do now?
7: So, we need to kind of learn to depend more on our senses than our brain to determine threat level. Yes. Because your brain will create threat level uh-huh. when there really about, isn't about, anything about, there. But if you go, can you see anything dangerous in this moment? Yeah. You know, what, what's actually happening?
1: See, but that's. Come to your that, senses,
7: folks. Now you're Not saying. Your mind. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because now you're saying you got to be in tune enough to know. What my what the data is telling me and instead of just convoluting and making it up. Absolutely. That, that takes maturity, doesn't it?
7: <laughs> so I do. I do have some good stuff yeah. we can talk about today about kind of how to watch your thinking and good. not experience as much stress and fear.
1: Give us one and then we'll go to break.
7: OK, so I call this the haunted house analogy. OK. You know when you're in a haunted house and things keep those, jumping out in yeah. front of you, and uh-huh. they they might startle you or scare you for a minute, but then you remind yourself,
1: "I'm in a haunted house."
7: Yeah, this isn't real. this This isn't really yeah. Jason. This is just yeah. a guy.
1: It's, just not a real, like yeah, him. it's not a real. Yeah, it's <laughs> not a real wood chipper that they're walking me towards. Yeah.
7: So most of the things that we're experiencing stress and fear about are more illusion. I mean, you've heard the the acronym for fear: false evidence appearing real. Real, Yeah. And I think I I often have a client write down all the things that they're scared of at work, that bring up fear at work. And really, your work is just a haunted house. It really is. All these things jump up. The the reality of how much of it you should really experience stress over is really small. And if I can go into work almost seeing this as a haunted house and just calm down because this really isn't that real. That's right. It's just stuff that my head wants to be afraid of. And recognize that it's not that stuff that's causing your stress; it's what you're thinking about, or it's how you're thinking about those things that's causing the stress. Yeah. So after the break, we can talk about ways to get control of your head oh. and think ah. smarter about scary things. Oh
1: my heavens! Kim Giles is her name. ClarityPointCoaching dot com. That's her game. Go to her website, uh, and by the way, you can take her fear assessment. She has tons of uh, free tools there. You name it, it's all there, including her book, her coaching. You can get all the help you need there. Kim Giles is her name. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us is Kimberly Giles. Kim Giles from, uh, uh, capa- or I was going to call it Capacity, claritypointcoaching.com. She um, is a, a wonderful speaker, author, life coach extraordinaire. And today she's teaching us about, really, that life is a lot safer than we think it is, but we got to get our minds to believe it. How do I get my mind to not be afraid of something?
7: Okay, so a couple things. It's
1: not working.
7: <laughs> well, I've found that if I can help a client change a couple of their really core fundamental beliefs about life, yeah, that life won't look as scary. And one of these comes from studying the work of Viktor Frankl. Love you know, I him. love to talk yeah. about him. Um, he, you know, he went through something pretty stressful and and scary, being a prisoner in the concentration camps in World War II. And one of the things that he discovered there is that if you can see meaning and purpose in things, if you can look in your, at your life in a way that there's a reason things happen, right. so things can kind of make sense, then you'll suffer less. He basically said suffering ceases to be suffering when it finds a meaning. So one of the analogies that helps my clients a lot is to think of life as a classroom And that we are basically students here in this classroom and we're here to learn how to love ourselves and other people and to grow and become this better person. And if that's truth for you, if you decide that fits your belief system, then that means every single thing that shows up is an interesting lesson that's here to teach you either to trust god yeah. or or to love yourself or other people i i really feel like all lessons come around to either being about trust or love and and for a lot of people this really makes life a lot less scary because i literally feel like, that i'm in god or the universe's hands right um even if i have clients that don't necessarily believe in god as as a person but they believe there's a higher, a higher power, power force in the universe mm-hmm that kind of thing, the, the universe still kinda knows what it's doing. Right. And and all of us find synchronicities and coincidences that just can't be, where we feel like there you know, there is a a force in the universe that knows what it's doing and it does seem to bring you the exact lessons you need. Yeah. I mean
1: it's amazing. This this is the lesson I need in this moment. I mean if you're open minded to that.
7: If you are, yeah. and and I have a lot of clients that aren't sure about that idea, mm-hmm. they're not sure if they believe that's truth, so we say play with it. Yeah. Play with how you might feel different. If all the annoying or scary things that hit you today, you could step back and go, ooh, if this was my perfect lesson, what would this be here to teach me? Right. So, like, I have a client who's, who's got a boss at work that's a nightmare. That's so mean to her. It's just she horrible. She doesn't work here
1: at a, on my show, does she?
7: Yeah, and the boss is Matt Townsend.
1: Oh, my gosh. No, I know him. <laughs> what a jerk.
7: No, but but she was just eaten alive with this situation, how horrible it was. And when she decided to step back and say, okay, maybe the universe put me in this place because there's something important I can learn from dealing with this problem mm-hmm. with the boss. And just that took a lot of the pain out of it because it wasn't personal. It was more like a, an experiment, this interesting learning opportunity, right, right. and she could stand back and go, okay, what are the fears this boss is bringing out in me? And and we could all ask that. If, if we're scared or bothered by things in the world, what's this bringing up in you? Mm-hmm. And is this something that was really there in you before this situation, but the situation's triggering it, bringing it to the surface That's so great. you can learn something yeah. from it? Well,
1: and even the, the idea that you're framing it as a, how am I supposed to learn from this instead of being... Tortured and beat down and oppressed. Just yes. that. The world has you isn't look...
7: out to get you. No, no. The world is actually conspiring to serve and educate you mm-hmm. all the time.
1: Did you, so in our first hour, did you hear us interviewing Bob, or second hour interviewing Bob Beckel? Beckel?
7: No, I didn't.
1: So he's, a, he's on CNN. He's a political commentator on CNN. He was on Fox News. He's lived a really hard life. He's been shot. He's been stabbed. He's an alcoholic.
7: Wow.
1: And it all was – his life was horrible. And then eventually he basically found God and it reframed his entire life. Like
7: Wow. And
1: part of what it was is he was abused as a child by a father that was horrible and mean and an addict that would throw him downstairs. And now that he had this belief in God, he had a belief now that he had a, a safe father that would watch him.
7: Isn't that amazing? Uh, it, it just goes to show the smallest change in the way you see the whole thing is going to change oh, how you feel. Yeah, totally. So last night I, I got to sit with a friend that has a spinal cord injury. And, you know, she's she's going to get function of her limbs back, but it's going to be a long road. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of, you know, why do I have to go through this? This is so hard. And and she's able to start seeing that... that there are very unique lessons mm-hmm. that you learn. It changes you as a person going through a battle like she's going through. The strength, yeah. the compassion that she has for other people that are suffering is totally different. There's all kinds of beautiful lessons in that. So so try to look at what's going on in your life that way. Now, let's talk about Paris for a minute. Right. Because we get things like this, and I, all my clients immediately ask the question, well, why would that be our perfect Journey to have these horrible things happen,
6: right.
7: and a, a, I got the same questions. You know, a few years ago when the Sandy Hook shootings mm-hmm. happened, and it was children, right? Like, how would a, a loving God, yep. you know, think this was a good lesson? And I'm not going to pretend to know the answer. I I do believe there is one. Yeah. I, I'm curious about the increase of love for our fellow man that it brings up in all of us when these horrible things happen. Right. Because I've discovered I have this great love for people in Paris that I've never met. Mm -hmm. But I care about them at a level I wasn't previously aware of. Isn't that
1: interesting? That you wouldn't have had without the suffering. So maybe the suffering creates the space for more
7: love. Maybe. Now, Hmm. I also think maybe we aren't supposed to know why Mm -hmm. or have those things make sense. And I came across this amazing article written by Aaron Moss and and he talked about if you understood why those things happen you might be okay with them you might be less horrified right. and and you might accept them a little too soon and that's not really where we want to be so i got to read you this Matt mm-hmm. he said worse than innocent people suffering would be watching their suffering unmoved and that's exactly what would happen <laughs> if we were to understand why innocents suffer. We would no longer be bothered, and we we would no longer feel their pain because we would understand why it's happening. When we have an explanation, the pain doesn't seem as bad, and we can tolerate the suffering.
6: Interesting. And in
7: these cases, we do not want to tolerate or be okay with this kind of violence and suffering, no. right? We no. should be horrified. Yeah. So I think God doesn't want you to understand it. Yeah. But this is a chance for us to trust that even though we don't understand it, He created this universe with yep. free agency. The way it is for a reason. We got to just trust Him, and, and instead of asking why it happens, let's ask what What can I do? Yeah. How
1: can I do? How, what, what can, can I, I learn do? from this? How can I How can I use this? Isn't that interesting? You need the tension, don't you? You need the tension
7: to kind of, of motivate. Yeah, you do. motivate us.
1: Well, we see it every time. Every time there's this major kind of international catastrophe, people jump on board. But they weren't on board. Everyone was hating France and not liking <laughs> really, France and the struggling log with was France. Was not there until right. this happened. Isn't that
7: crazy? So we got to just ask ourselves: anytime time things look bad or scary, what can you do to make a difference? Yeah. And and maybe it's not a big thing. Maybe it's being more loving in your community, in your neighborhood, yeah. or your house. But us choosing trust and love will definitely be mm. the answer.
1: Kimberly Giles, I think. you nailed it. I mean, really, what else can you say? There's because you can't know, and yet, not knowing, you can keep trying to know, but better to know might be just go be what you need to be. What do you need to learn? What do you need to teach?
7: Focus on becoming better. Yeah. That's the best thing that we could do for the world and the problems that are out there is for each of us to work on ourselves and become a better person so that you contribute to a better world.
1: Because out of fear, we'll just create more fear. Absolutely. Ah, Kim Giles. Go to ClarityPointCoaching.com, folks. You can take the fear assessment. It's right there on the front page. Take the fear assessment. Find out how fear is impacting you. Kim Giles, thanks. Thanks for having me. We'll take a break, come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, find out uh, their, get their take on that uh, Missouri game, uh, BYU game. Interesting stuff. Uh, sure, we even created a little catharsis for Missouri ah, and the nation. We'll take a break. We'll be back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
5: Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, papa, don't you blow your top. The birds told the monkey you were choking me. Release your hope and I will set you free. The monkey looked the buzzer
0: <laughs> Welcome right back everybody. i said your story's
6: so touching, but it sounds just like
0: mm-hmm.
1: this is the Matt Townsend show. We're gonna shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Spencer
8: and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. I love this song, by the way. Do you love this song? Yes.
1: Do you? Is this what you listen to just on your way home?
8: Uh, not exactly, but I am uh, a big fan of the 1940s big band era. Are you really? Yeah.
1: I would never have known that.
8: Glenn Miller, all that stuff. Holy you bet. cow. You betcha.
1: You're changing me. I, ha- I just <laughs> thought you were a boy band guy. Oh, Ooh. No, 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 Believe no, it or no! Not,
8: no. I am the black sheep in my family when it comes to musical talent. I had three different siblings. That's right. You had one sing with Barry Manilow. scholarships for singing. Yeah, I just was the dummy that chose to talk about sports.
1: But ruggedly good looking.
8: <laughs> ruggedly
1: with a ripped six pack.
8: Well, I won't confirm or deny that.
1: <laughs> I've seen the video footage from you at the beach.
4: <laughs> Wait, there's there's on video TMZ. Me at the it's beach. incredible. Yeah. I hope to be interviewed by TMZ one day. That's when I will feel like I may felt like I made it. Do you
1: know what? I think it's probably gonna happen sooner than you think. You might not be it may not be TMZ. It
4: TNZ. May, I mean it may better.
1: not be t- sorry, T N Z. It may it, it may who it's gonna be. It's probably gonna be um, I don't know, CIA.
8: <laughs> we do want to start VYE Sports Nation TMZ. Oh I think you should.
1: Don't you that think? will
4: not be approved by the brass, I promise you right now. I think it'd be fantastic. <laughs> who's dating who on campus? <laughs> that would be great. He's super hilarious. Because
1: you are you know who's dating, you find out the stories, but you're not you're not bringing them up
4: you got to let... There's some truth to that.
8: Word has it, Jeremy Matt, that this certain athlete left an apartment (laughs) building at 12.01 a.m. And that Uh, is an honor code
4: violation.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you could break all the honor code stuff. Oh, that's horrible. Horrible. He was
8: turned away in the testing center line.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He had a two-day growth of beard. Not good. This
4: place is so awesome, yet so weird.
1: Hey, guys, did you guys watch a game this weekend?
4: Several games, in fact, four or five football games, uh, BYU games.
1: Do you want to say anything about the BYU Missouri game?
8: We will for five hours this week. Oh, missed opportunity.
1: Yeah. That was, I mean, it was nice. It was nice of BYU to help Missouri heal, you know?
8: That was the one thing my wife said to me. She's like, mostly I'm just really upset, but. Like the only thing that kind of makes us okay is I feel happy for that football coach because he has cancer.
1: Isn't that? I mean, really, that's a
4: great story. So we should just yield a win because of
8: that. <laughs> no, I didn't just yield a win no. to make Gary Pinkle feel good. I'm just saying, <sighs> slippery slope.
4: It's a slippery slope. Ugh.
1: You know, yeah, you guys B- are sad. Yeah. I shouldn't have brought it up.
4: There, there are you know four four players I kind of point to that uh, didn't go BYU's way that really turned the game BYU. Turns the ball over when they're about, you know, knocking on the door to get points. Adam Nae yeah. fumbles. Tanner Mangum fumbles inside uh, BYU's twenty. BYU has an interception uh, in the end zone, but there's pass interference call. Ugh, yeah. Uh, also on that drive, uh, you know, a targeting Ugh. penalty on a third down. BYU had plenty of opportunity, and I th- I thought we're in position to win that game several times, but Missouri comes out a winner. and Now BYU is seven and three, which is still a good record through ten. But it's not, always not ranked today. They're not relevant, whereas no. I think we thought that they could seize that moment and unfortunately did not. <sighs> so you're going to bring it up on your show? Yes. So,
1: we
8: discussed not doing that, but.
1: It sounds like you're going to have a downer show if you're not careful.
8: I don't think it'll be a downer show. I think it'll just be i I'll be, I'll be down. So what now? Yeah, now what? Right.
1: Do you have I'm, an answer? I'm
4: annoyed. Are you ticked? Yeah, I, re- I really am. I thought BYU could seize the moment. And they didn't. Hey, and, uh, I, it's
1: disappointing. You want me to lighten your load? No. Pay, okay, I will. Peyton Manning um, apparently struggled, right? But <laughs> broke the record, and then they pulled and benched him. But it's because he had plantar fasciitis, which is the exact same thing I had. Yeah. So, you know, I he got through it. Put I mean, you know what I mean. So if if you guys know Peyton or anybody that's around Peyton, have them call me.
8: Peyton Manning's stat line yesterday, honestly, I think was 5-for-20 for for like 39 yards
4: and 4 picks.
1: That's like me, man.
4: Left-handed, could you do that?
1: No, not left-handed, but right-handed I could, which is my good hand.
4: Left-handed, could you complete 5 passes and 4 to the other team as well?
8: Against an NFL defense?
4: Nah. (laughs) If they're out of the backfield? (laughs)
8: Lefty.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, so that was, I mean,
1: that's that's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. But it makes sense if he had plantar fasciitis problems. You know, it's almost... It happens. It's, it's deadly. I don't know if you guys have had it, but it's deadly.
4: It's not deadly. No,
1: it is. I've, I almost lost my foot. They're like, should we take his foot? And they're like, That's no. That's not the definition just, of deadly. Just get him an orthotic.
8: No, your life ends when your foot
4: is gone. <laughs> yeah. You can't say it's I, deadly. I can't. Then you can't go
1: eat? How could I eat? <laughs> oh, my god. How could I drive to, you know, Wendy's and eat?
4: Uh... Straighten
8: up and fly right... <laughs> Straighten up and live
1: right. Any Anything else going Hey, by the way, see, your song reminded me of this, a CIA problem. Did you know that the CIA, have you ever heard of the the group called West Life?
4: Oh, I lived from that. England. I lived that in uh-huh. Salt Lake Valley. I was on the west side.
1: The, C, the CIA used Irish boy band West Life as a torture treatment to interrogate uh, terrorists in <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> And eventually, these people would crack. They used the Irish boy band called Westlife to torture Sulaiman Abdullah in Afghanistan. His interrogators would intersperse a syrupy song called My Love with heavy metal played on repeat uh, at ear splitting volume. And he went crazy.
0: I would too!
1: See? So, Waterboard or Westlife? Take your pick. Oh. Yeah, beautiful.
8: (laughs) <laughs> that was funny. We own this CD. You do? No you don't. We do. No you don't. Yes. Do you really? Yes, my wife and I own this compact disc.
1: Did you know that it was used to wow. like waterboarding?
8: <laughs> no. But it's probably been 15 years since I heard it. You need
1: to pull it out, man, and use it more. Oh. It's a, it's an, it's a brilliant technique. You deprive them of sleep, you expose them to high heats, you put them in a coffin-shaped box, and then you play a boy band. (laughs) That's great stuff.
8: Oh, my goodness.
1: Isn't that great? See, this is the information you won't get on BYU Sports Nation.
8: Don't get me wrong. I'm not laughing because of the interrogation factor. I'm just laughing because they chose West
4: Waterboarding hilarious. It is not. (laughs) No,
8: it's it's
1: not. It's because it's because you have you paid for the CD.
8: I heard that song. It's like wow. I own the CD that the CIA is using to interrogate. It's totally
1: true. I mean, oh well. You guys, I think you're gonna have a great show today. Anything else going to be on the show?
8: I can't think of anything but Jack Bauer using Westlife to find out things. <laughs> I love Jack Bauer.
4: BYU men's basketball is playing tonight huh? at 1.45 a.m. Eastern Time. So wow. is it tonight or is it tomorrow morning? Why With, so where late? Where they're playing. It's part of the ESPN Tip-Off Marathon. So you can listen to that on BYU Radio tonight.
1: Well, wouldn't we be asleep?
4: Or this morning? I'm, I'll be up watching. It's on ESPN 2 as well. Yep. Okay. But I had to get a BYU Radio plug because that is... That's great. Who is, the, that is, you know, the channel that this that's, conversation that's Are you objective. doing the play-by-play, Matt? Yeah, I am. Okay. I'll do the play-by-play. Old, old Bob Bolo, formerly oh, of BYU yeah. TV Sports, is on the call for uh, BYU Ooh. Men's Hoops. Too. Bob Bolo? <laughs> yeah, Bob Bolo.
1: <laughs> Did he invent a Bolo
8: tie?
4: Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah, that guy.
8: You guys. Again, yeah, you're doing it again.
4: Robbie and I go way back. We are. We
8: well, are. ESPN's a... Trevor Maddich on the show as well, so. Man,
1: locked and loaded. Have a great show. and. Uh West more West Life music to you both. I hope I hope it just keeps the love alive and the terrorists out.: See,
8: <laughs> do, 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 do.
1: <laughs> so you could still sing it man. just know if worst came do, to worse, do, 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 Spencer, you could go sing West Life for the military in, during an interrogation. <laughs> okay. it could be good.: All right. Good luck, gentlemen. Thanks, have a great sir. show. Knock em dead. Good stuff. See? there are there's, there's an answer. There is always hope. Uh, Let me give you a few more uh, little tidbits of information you need to be paying attention to out there, right? You know, it doesn't – it's not like life is perfect. But here's a a little bit of info that uh, you need to know about when it comes to drinking and driving. An Ohio man apparently was drunk when he had his nine-year-old neighbor drive him to a gas station to buy barbecue sauce for their chicken dinner. Hey, Timmy, you want a barbecue chicken dinner? A Tiffin spokesman, police spokesman, tells the uh, Advertiser Tribune that the boy drove the man to a gas station Saturday evening, but clerks wouldn't let the child drive home and reported the situation. Police say the 27-year-old man tried to drive home and was pulled over by police officers. Police say the man had the child over for dinner. The boy's parents didn't know the neighbor was drunk. They do know that he drove the guy
4: to get chicken barbecue sauce. So were the parents mad that the guy was drunk or that the kid drove to the gas station?
1: I don't know how mad they really were. I mean, if you're letting your kid go drink uh, or go to a neighbor's house for chicken barbecue dinner and you're not going and he's gone all night, yeah, there's probably other issues. Going on. Hey, uh, so if you can't, if you're drinking and driving, you might want to take public transportation. And according to some new studies, especially uh, Japanese researchers have found that uh, apparently taking public transportation may be a lot better for your health than ever known before. According to a study presented at the American Heart Association Scientific Sessions in 2015, riding the bus or train to work is associated with significant improvements in health. The research included almost 6,000 adults in Osaka, Japan, and they compared bus train commuters to walker, bikers, and drivers. The researchers adjusted for factors like age, gender, smoking, and other factors, and they compared those who drove themselves to work and people who took the bus or train, and they found out that those who drove themselves to work um, versus those that were on the train. Those that were on the train were 44 percent less likely to be overweight than those that drove themselves to work. They were 27% less likely to have high blood pressure if you take public transportation, 34% less likely to have diabetes.
4: So it's healthier to be on the bus. Did they factor in right calf muscular size? No. Oh, okay. Don't know why they would. Well, like because when you drive, you're you're pushing. Yeah, you're only
1: working one leg.
4: Yeah, so the right calf side. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, unless you, yeah.
4: I think it'd be valuable to, to consider. Well, yeah. yeah,
1: We'll, we'll submit that for him. Um, one surprising nugget from the study was that the bus and train commuters had even lower rates of diabetes, high blood pressure, and overweight than the walkers or the bikers. Isn't that interesting? So it was even still healthier to take public transportation than walking or biking. That doesn't make sense, right, until the researchers note that this could be because these commuters actually walked farther back and forth from the train or bus stop – then the walkers or bikers traveled to and from work because you have to get to the bus stops and bus stops you walk to and they're you know it's hard to walk. So anyway, you might want to consider more public transportation. And as we always like to wrap up the show with a hero story, we've got a hero for you from um, Paris attacks. A suicide bomber was blocked from entering the, the the stadium de France, Stade de France. A man apparently set to detonate a suicide vest tried to enter the France versus Germany soccer match at the Stade de France, but was turned away by security guards and subsequently set off as explosives. Wall Street Journal's Shelby Holiday has the details. At least one of the attackers outside France's National Soccer Stadium had a ticket to the game and attempted to enter the 80,000-person venue. According to the security guard who was on duty, the guard who asked to be identified only by his first name, said that the attacker was discovered wearing an explosives vest that he was frisked at the entrance to the stadium about 15 minutes into the game. France was playing at an exhibition against Germany. And uh, while attempting to back away from security, Zohair said the attacker detonated the vest, which was loaded with explosives and bolts, uh, according to the Paris prosecutor. So their searches ended up saving many, many lives because they did turn away the, uh, the bomber. Three minutes later, a second person also blew himself up outside of the stadium. A third suicide attacker detonated explosives at a nearby McDonald's, police said. One civilian died in the attacks, police said. So when you have to go through those searches, folks, and you're rolling your eyes and you can't believe they're slowing down your process, just think back that it does save lives. It truly does. So let's, uh, let's be appreciative of those heroes that are out there on the front lines trying to protect all of us. That's the show, my friends. They're the heroes of the day, and our prayers go out to the people of Paris, France, and uh, may may we all keep them in our memory. We'll be back tomorrow, folks. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. Until tomorrow, take care and make it a great one.